0: To episode one hundred, the dorks awaken. Um, you know, before we begin this ridiculously epic three-part extravaganza, um, I wanted to say a few words—or probably a few hundred words—up front here. Um, you know, technology was not our f- our friend once again. Something was not uh, working properly. So hopefully Patrick and I, you know, despite using a laptop microphone, as opposed to our usual professional microphone setup, it doesn't take away from the experience of listening. And, um, you know, I just, I, I don't think it sounds bad, but there's certainly a uh, difference from our usual live in room recordings. I guess that's just a basic heads up and I'm sure it won't take away from the overall content. Uh, at least that 's my hope but um i have to I have to begin you know episode one hundred with a uh, a long list of thank yous that we just did not have time to get to <laughs> despite it going as long as it did uh, I do have to thank my dear friend and former co host of course for embarking on this journey for so long through sight and sound uh with 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 so much enthusiasm all these years, and he's a remarkable person, that Patrick, and I'm grateful that he's my friend. Um, And I'm also glad that I've made new friends um, as a result of starting this ridiculous show back in, geez, 2011, January of 2011. Uh, Guys like Bill Ackerman and Andrew James and Jay Cheel and several guests we've had on over the years, I I consider them to be friends, even if we... Never hang out in person, and you know, or we only hang out once or twice in our entire lives and just meet up once a year for for beer you know it's it's just you 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 feel such gratitude when you finally get to passionately talk about the things that um you thought you were a little crazy to obsess over anyway, and then it's like, oh yeah, there are many others out there like me. So, yeah. Even if you don't always agree, or you don't see eye to eye on the same film, it doesn't matter. Uh, so, yes, I will even include Matt Campbell in that uh, list of friends that I'm I'm grateful to have um, met through making this podcast. And uh, he's, but believe it or not, he's not nearly as mean as as, as you would think in person. So, and I could go on and on and on about Colin Souter, Eric Childress, and of course Nick DeGilio, but I think all of you know by now uh, those three guys are the reason I do what I do, particularly Nick, um, who in 1990 told me I should see Pump Up the Volume, and it forever turned me into a talk radio nerd. So I found my voice. I try to use it well despite fumbling, which you probably will hear a lot, uh, and re- repeating words repeating words, repeating words, saying, um, way too much, uh, you know, like all those other things. Um, so I ha I just did it again. See, I have to thank my family too, for being very supportive, um, and good friends like Kim who worked with me in a video store for two years and to see her light up when I recently visited her and talked about hateful eight was a wonderful gift to my life. Um so yeah I I also have to thank Derek Camp for being an incredible person and boyfriend to my friend Heather back in Michigan. They both helped me transition um back to um my home territory and they put up with a lot of crazy health issues. People like Derek are very rare. In this life, and you—you you heard him briefly. You heard him for like five minutes reviewing Interstellar with me in a on a bonus episode. So um, he's a, he's he's a tr- he's a true blue that guy. So there are many podcasters like the guys from the Cinecast, where the Long Tail Ends, Film Junk, and so much more for inspiration and support. I would have never even attempted the show if it weren't for hearing their three hour podcasts, which made me laugh and taught me a few things about how to look at movies differently, but really this is a big old love letter to whoever is listening to this right now and continues to Uh, episode 100 could have been just another silly clip show, but I've done that twice before and it's better if it's just an episode that you're used to, like um, an insanely long, ridiculously, uh, digressive? Well, no, it's not digressive at all. We we, we managed to st- stick to the t- to the landing and just go on and on about certain titles. Um, but yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know what else is there. Hmm. I just want to thank you. So I think that's about it. I I think you all know how I feel about doing this show. It means so much to me that you listen and subscribe and tell your friends and write reviews on iTunes or write in emails or, or just simply love movies that 's what it comes down to. It means that we 're having a true connection and that 's rare you know I mean obviously, yes, I wish we could all meet face to face but you know I just love listening to people talk more than anything else so the fact that podcasts exist are kind of a godsend, and I enjoy it far more than reading. Text or watching videos and, you know, I mean, podcasts can be there when you're brushing your teeth or washing the dishes or mowing the lawn or cleaning your car or driving three hours to work, sitting in traffic, you know. Uh, they work with you, they work with you, depending on the st- on, on the day to day activities you know with your schedule, they move along with you, so there 's this cool intimacy that happens and i don 't know if it 's ever meant to be anything more than comforting background noise for you or something that you actually attentively listen to to the point of taking notes and jotting down titles, which is crazy when I read that um in a couple of emails and, that means the world to me, that, like, oh, I never would have saw this movie before for you mentioning it. But, you know, that's not what matters. What matters is that we love movies together in a communal way. And active listening is blah, what I blah, live blah, for, blah, blah, even more than talking. Blah, 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 so blah, 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 blah. thank you with all my heart and soul for listening to episode one hundred and. Any episode, past or present. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Mr. Bell. On to the show at hand. Here is the three part miniseries of sorts, raw, uncut, hopefully something you'll like. Here's to 100 more episodes. Cheers.
1: I messed, erased, true sure. love. I ain't tryna roll no dice. I just wanna make it right. right. When the fuck, I'ma turn, turn it over,
2: turn it, turn it like ice. I'm on the burner, on the burner, still concerned. The shit ain't straight like a burner. A, a, a name. What if I, I need a poke, need a cardinal?
0: Uh, a certain thing. Ready yet? a pacifier? Pacifier?
1: Pacifier? Ladies and gentlemen, those who do not believe in a gender binary, we are back. Welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I'm here with Jim Laskowski. Indeed,
0: I am here in your lovely apartment, ready to rock this best of episode. Thank you.
1: Thank you. uh, It's episode 100. It's our five year anniversary of doing the show. But we're not just here with each other. We have a guest, Bill Ackerman. Welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. Now, this is the year-end episode. We're going to go over all the movies 2015, do our top ten lists, all that kind of stuff. Before we get into any of that, though, there is a, a sort of oath I want you guys to repeat. So if you, if you could raise your right hand. Um, I'm Bill. We're going on the honor system here. Um, all, right. all right. Yeah. I, just repeat after me. All right. I. I. Your name here. Bill. Jim. Acknowledge that ranking art is dumb.
0: Acknowledge, Acknowledge that ranking, ranking art, art is, dumb. is
1: dumb. Acknowledge that year of releases is, is a subjective and arbitrary way to divide art. Acknowledge, Acknowledge that, that year, year of release releases is a selective and arbitrary way to divide art. Is a subjective and arbitrary way to define art. Acknowledge that none of this really means anything. Acknowledge, Acknowledge that none, that of, none, this none of, this of this really means, means anything. anything. Amen. Praise auto premature.
0: Amen. Amen. Praise, Praise. Otto, Otto Preminger, Preminger and Paul Thomas Anderson.
1: Uh, okay, well, y- y- you're a zealot. I don't. I'm not into this at all anymore. I did that to
0: annoy you. At any rate, I take a drink yeah. every time I annoy Patrick.
1: I think we're now ready. <laughs> I've already had three. To to start uh, arguing about uh, about the films that came out in 2015. <gasps> All That's right. awesome. Jim, what did you think about this year in film?
0: You know, I thought it was a damn good year. Yeah. You know, might be the strongest since 2007, but then again, I think I said that in, what was the year of Upstream Color? 2013. Yeah. 2013 was a good year. <laughs> that was a very good year indeed. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 I thought uh, there was, it may, it may have started out a little slow, as most years do, you know, with your January and February and March, but yeah. Um, Around the summertime, I thought things picked up quite 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 a bit. You know, um, I was very happy to sit through the new Mission Impossible movie, which was a genuine surprise, although I did like the last one. And uh, Mad Max Fury Road blew me out of the theater. It was fucking great. And it sort of made me excited to sit through more summer blockbusters again. I don't know if I did a whole bunch, but at least they weren't full of bullshit. Yeah. Like we've talked about in the past with blockbuster movies. Yeah, yeah.
1: There's, there's cool. no real bullshit in Mad Max. I didn't really get a chance to see Mission Impossible, but...
3: Yeah, it's quite good. It's quite good. Yeah, for me, I, I saw a lot of films that are in my top ten, uh, well, a number of them last year at the New York Film Festival, and then a few things that I really loved I saw in January. So I thought the year was starting off really well, um, things that you know were coming out in 2015 that I'd seen last year. And then um, by summertime, I felt like maybe the year was not so good because it, several months had gone by where I'd not seen anything that really knocked me out. And then, you know, as it seems to be in a lot of years lately, like by the time – award season starts rolling around like fall hits. And then all of a sudden it's hard to keep track of everything that you want to see. Like it, it just kind of steamrolls from there. But I, I don't know if that's going to be just the norm now because of the way Hollywood, you know, thinks about award prestige pictures and, you know, just how everybody is kind of geared towards that, that Oscar push. So it, it, I don't know. This not the first year that feels lopsided to me in that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I look at my list of movies, that are my top 10 favorite movies of the year. Most of them came out in the first half of the year. I just didn't get around to seeing them until more recently. Um, yeah. So we'll, uh, yeah, we'll see. But I, I do think that the Oscar kind of movies that came out this year were also kind of refreshingly free of bullshit. You had something like spotlight. which could have been very sanctimonious, but was very content to be a stripped down procedural. Um, you know, you had Carol that sort of downplayed the forbidden romance or the, you know the gay rights angle that it could have had, um, which I think disappointed some people. I think they were expecting a lot more from
0: certain movies. Like the, there are definite people who love Spotlight and Carol, but there are also f- factions that I I heard where they they feel they were a little overhyped and the, their expectations were not met based on that hype. And a lot of it's just, oh, I heard it was the best movie of the year, kind right? Of talk, but but, but know, as far as movies
1: that are being presented now as like for uh, awards contenders. Yeah. Like Carol is infinitely superior to probably anything came out 10 years ago. I know Mm -hmm. what what, it would be like North country. (laughs) Like like it would would be like that kind of movie where it's very much just like an easy, uh, you know, underhand pitch, um, to audiences, you know, even, even a movie like Mad Max, which is very fucking weird. Um, I, didn't, I mean, I did like that nearly as much as a lot of people, but that's a really weird movie, and for that to suddenly have this uh, prestige to it maybe implies that while Hollywood continues to sort of slide into the direction of creating, like, shared universes and remakes and sequels, I mean, like, Star Wars, everyone was, I don't think, necessarily surprised by it, but everyone really loved Star Wars, but... Yeah, there's gonna be a Star Wars movie a year, so the the bloom will I think will come off the rose pretty quick on that whole universe. But like, yeah, it's interesting
0: because with Mad Max, Creed, and Star Wars, they were all very good movies,
1: yeah, but they're and all sequels they're, as well. I
0: know, but that's what I mean. It's like I'm not used to being kind of over the moon about oh it's another reboot, oh it's another sequel. Like I'm not even the biggest Star Wars fan and I, I just had a genuinely good time at the movies. So, like I didn't walk out thinking it was amazing yeah. or high art or anything, but I was just like, that was fun. They like, it felt those, good to have fun
1: again. Those films, I mean, unless they're I don't think they were such huge successes that they're gonna change the way films are made at all. Those films feel more like outli- like very pleasant surprises and outliers more than they feel like, oh, this is where Hollywood's gonna go. But yeah. what I do think is if Hollywood is just going to keep doubling down on bigger budgets and, and like shared universes and multimedia sort of bullshit, um, which, you know, even if good movies can result to that, like star Wars, it's the, the way Disney has just decided to announce the way it's approaching star Wars as a property is bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Like e- at least maybe that means that uh, it's kind of ignoring the quote unquote prestige picture. And that means that there's, Genuinely interesting movies are kind of filling that gap, as opposed to you know whatever the Weinstein's are trying to shove down your throat, you know, as, as, yeah. as opposed to Bobby <laughs> or oh, God, yeah, you know, like or or Crash, that. you know, that sort yeah. of thing. I hope we're
0: but, done with movies like Crash getting the kind of awards acclaim that it did. Um, but because, you know, you know, and, and the same thing, like for every Mad Max and Mission Impossible, we still have. That Avengers sequel, which was subpar, and Jurassic World, which I never even bothered to see just because it was like – it just looks like nothing interesting.
1: Well, I'll, I'll talk about Jurassic World a little later. Yeah. I, well,
3: I mean, I'm looking at the the top ten grossing films of, of this year, and uh, I think seven of the ten are blockbuster sequels to other things.
1: Is one of them um, Minions? Yes. Yeah, OK. So that's yeah. all you have to know about Hollywood. One of, yeah. one of the best uh, – biggest uh, movies of the year is Minions. The, so. the biggest well,
3: – well, I mean – Inside Out, The Martian, and if you don't consider it a sequel, the uh, the newest version of Cinderella are the only non-sequels in the top 10. Everything huh. else is a franchise sequel film.
1: Inside and, and Inside Out, like the way those all those films are marketed is just that's the next Pixar film. Right, exactly. I mean, it's still part of a f- franchise in a sense. Sort of. Although
0: The Good d- Dinosaur didn't get the kind of publicity that Inside Out got.
1: Well, yeah, it also right. didn't get the kind of reviews that Inside Out got. But, um, right,
0: right.
1: But yeah, yeah but, and so... I I don't really have much more faith in Hollywood. I think that some very pleasant uh, outliers came out of Hollywood this year, but I'm not necessarily like walking out of this going all right. Let's I can't wait to see 2016's blockbusters. I'm gonna I'm still taking my wait and see approach. Maybe even a right. little harder now.
3: Well, this is also a year where a lot of the old school hit makers had films about grown ups that flopped hard. I mean, you have Robert Zemeckis with The Walk, and you have Ron Howard with that Moby Dick movie. You have <laughs> even the Spielberg Bridge of Spies was not like as big as his, um, Jurassic Park, you know, yeah, that franchise. of Spies came and went. I heard nothing about that movie. Yeah, yeah. that's
0: surprising.
3: And it's, it's a perfectly, you know, fine, yeah. old school Hollywood, you know, espionage film. It's, you've got the Coen Brothers script. It's got, you know, technically it's, you know, across the board great, but it's like, it's an out of fashion kind of film. Like it's um, like it's Billy Wilder's Avanti, you know, yeah. like it's like, it, it's, it's perfectly good, but no one cares really. It yeah. hasn't had the cultural impact anymore because it's, I feel like, and I, we, you know, this is like a digression, but like, you know, I feel like the cultural momentum for like smart adult entertainment is all on television for the most part. And Hollywood is kind of just reselling old memories, you know, for hundred million dollar budgets. At least looking at the numbers. I mean, we're going to talk about all the exceptions, but I think what Hollywood will do is look at Star Wars and Jurassic World and Avengers, and think like, all right, this is what we got to do.
1: Yeah, there's not a single film. um, Yeah, things won't change in that regard. There, maybe with one possible exception, there's not a single film in my top ten that I would say comes out of the Hollywood tradition. They're all, they're all sort of, and I mean, that is maybe the good thing about something like Bridge of Spies flopping, is it implies that people aren't people will actually wait. I mean, maybe it just means that the audience for those kinds of movies is shrinking to the point where outlets like NPR or whatever have a disproportionately kind of like high effect on what kind of movies people go out and make an effort to see. But like films like Bridges, spies, flopping maybe means that you can't buy prestige anymore, which is a, which is a good thing in its own way. Even if it maybe also means that just that audience is shrinking.
3: Well, this particular year is interesting because a lot of the you know would be box office uh, champions of the art house world, you know, and I say art house loosely, but all got leaked online. I mean, The Revenant and The Hateful Eight and Joy, you know, a lot of these things had their legs cut out from that under them, you know, probably by you know who knows how many millions of dollars by uh, the internet, and like that's not going to happen to Star Wars, but that will definitely impact you know the the competition. you know, in terms of like the big, the bigger tier, I mean, um, independent ish films. I don't know. I, it's, it's interesting. Cause I mean, you know, the money, The you know, I mean, a lot of the filmmakers we like struggle to get the money and, you know, there's only so many, you know, uh, people like, what is her name that gives Paul Thomas Anderson money? <laughs> um, Anna Perna pictures, like there's only so oh. many, you know, pat- patrons to auteurs. I don't know, but I mean, you know, I'm sure we'll be talking about films shot on cell phones and all that. Like, there's still art to be made on no money. It's just yeah,
0: oh for sure. And I think you know. VOD and you know that 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 platform has served a lot of independent filmmakers quite well in that it, it allows like, you know, uh, when you open up iTunes, there's a listing of you know uh, independent features right at the front page that i have never heard of. When I'll click on it and read the synopsis, and if it sounds interesting, I will actually pay to rent it. And yeah. you know, and check it out. Then, like movies like Tangerine can find an audience in that fashion. I mean, I would much rather go ahead and see it on the big screen, regardless. But at the same time, there is a convenience factor that I understand. You know, even even a movie like, as I was watching James White, I was like, you know what? I probably would be just as comfortable watching this on my TV at home as you know as uh, as opposed to the big screen. And maybe it's just because, like, oh, my God, I'm crying so hard, I'm embarrassing myself here, that, yeah. uh, you know, doing that at home is is, is less um, awkward.
1: <laughs> I, will, I will also say maybe it's just because I went to multiplexes less this year than any other year in my film-going history. Mm-hmm. I maybe went to the multiplexes three times this year. I think the actual theater-going experience has gotten way, way shittier. Every time I've gone to a multiplex, I saw Creed. Uh, that had a horrible projection the bulb was like really dim the th- right half of the screen the right half of the screen was like twenty five percent darker than the rest of the screen Jeez. it was a it was a shitty theater where it was like check out these nice luxury uh, you know leather recliners that you get to sit in but there's literally only four rows of seats and the first yeah. two rows your neck is straining to see the whole screen like so there's really literally only like twenty viable seats in the whole theater. Like, I think theater-going experience for, you know, when you're not going to the Gene Siskel, you're not going to the Music Box, when you're not going to uh, Century Landmark is another good one in Chicago for the sort of mid-level art house films. Like, when you're not going to a theater that its patrons primarily care about cinema as an art, shit has gotten really bad.
3: Yeah, I saw uh, that film Room uh, in a Multiplex, and the DCP kept pausing um, during the first act. Which is um, something you'd never experience in the days of celluloid, for all the uh, you know the broken reels and misframing. It's right. It's literally pausing <laughs> during a key moment. Um, I don't know. For, like when we get into our list, and I don't want to like you know. I know we probably have a lot to cover, um, but the um, number of films I saw that were really like incredible theatrical experiences, but not commercial films. Um, that won't really survive the translation to the streaming model that well. It almost feels like a last gasp, and I don't know if that's kind of changed like radically in ten years, where you know, films like you know, for example, Guy Maddens, the for, you know, Forbidden Room. Like, I don't know if those are going to get theatrical releases in ten years, like the way things are going. And it's like it's not the same thing on your computer.
0: <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I agree. I mean, luckily you can connect your computer to a decent TV and. I connect my computer to a decent set of speakers, yeah, and it makes it a little better. I, it, I, oh, it does, but you know, I mean, but it's yeah. not the same thing. No, it's not. It, you still hear, you know, your cat's running around the background, or you know, there's still things that can distract you very easily, and it's very tempting to like, oh, I got a text, I should check it out in the middle of the movie or something. Whereas in a theater, it is you have to just completely immerse yourself in the dark and. Experience the movie without any distractions. at Well, unless you got annoying patrons around, yeah. but it's still, you know, I still find value in both experiences. I, I, I do. I don't. I, I would yeah. say the theatrical experience is way better, but I still, I still don't mind having to resort to doing that, especially for like Two Doors Nicole, having that personal, <laughs> intimate experience for a very personal, intimate movie felt right as right. opposed to maybe seeing it in the big screen. You know, so I mean, yeah. there's, it's, it's subjective. It's certain certain movies apply
1: in certain movies. But don't. even even if it's not something, isn't a visual tour de force. Even if it isn't shot on 70 millimeter and projected in a in a ratio that hasn't been in use since Ben Hur. Like even if it's not that kind of experience. Like if I saw Tangerine at home instead of in a theater where everyone was losing their minds. Like whole like mm-hmm. people were going crazy in the theater when I saw Tangerine because you didn't know, like because that movie is so audacious and so unforgiving. Um, and unapologetic about its characters, you know, people were just losing their minds, going, "Where the hell is this going?" It's like it keeps topping itself with how outrageous it gets.
0: Oh yeah, like that
1: movie shot on iPhones. I'm not gonna say like you're not doing like the cinema of it, you know, justice by watching it on your really nice TV. Yeah. But uh, but like seeing that in a theater is still the kind of experience that. I would, I would not like that nearly as much it's if I just watched it at home on Netflix.
0: It's the ideal experience, for sure. And I agree. And the audience reaction is part of the fun.
1: Speaking and- of um, but speaking of experiences, the nice thing about uh, living in a major city is that you see a lot of movies in theaters, or you have the opportunity to see a lot of movies in theaters, that aren't new releases. Um, and I saw a lot of movies this year for the first time that easily top any movie I saw that came out in 2015. Um
0: yeah, you well, know, are you talking about our favorite first-time watches?
1: Yeah, so I, w- I want to talk about the the fav- favorite movies that you saw for the first time um, that this year. Didn't come out in 2015. Yeah, um, yeah. I I have I have ten. I'm going to start with number one because number ten is amazing. So anyway, my number <laughs> my number one this year was The Third Man. I ended up watching that four times this year, and I had it on at work another like seven times. I've I've been Obsessing over that movie for maybe nine months now. I've, as well, you should. That movie's so good, Third Man. Uh, we saw that, right? Yeah, we yeah. saw that. We saw the 4K re-release of oh, that. Oh yeah, that was so good. I saw Vanya on 42nd Street for the first time, which has the best acting I've maybe seen in any movie ever. Um, <laughs> Vanya on 42nd Street, if you don't know, it was a group of uh, actors did rehearsals of Uncle of Chekhov's Uncle Vanya um, for years and years to nobody, no audiences or anything. They were just doing it as an exercise. And then by the time they came to the end of the process, they asked Louis Maul to film it. So it's these actors and they're in their street clothes and they're just in this abandoned theater and there's about maybe three people in the audience watching them. But because they've been playing the role so long, they're so lived in. Incredible, best version of Uncle Vanya ever. Uh huh. I saw Rebels of the Neon God, which, which is I can't seen. I cannot pronounce that director's name, but maybe Bill, you know. <laughs>
3: Um, yeah, what is it? Is it, um, hold on.
1: Is it, is it's it, is like Si Si Ming Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, Psy Ming Yang, or Yang, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, he makes these movies about very lonely people, and Rebels of the Neon God is, takes place in Taiwan in the mid-90s, and there's just fucking neon everywhere, and you see arcade machines, and it's so lonely, and it's so beautiful, and it just overwhelmed me. Speaking of overwhelming me, I saw Woman in the Dunes uh, as part of prep work for the uh, horror list that me, horror show that me and Gabe do. Oh, Woman oh, in the yeah. Dunes is this incredible Japanese art film from the '60s. Um, horror film is one way to describe it, and it it certainly uh, gets a lot of visceral horror out of just hmm. sand and the way sand like clumps on your body and the way sand piles up. And it, the Woman in the Dunes is incredible. It could be a metaphor for pretty much anything you put your mind to. It's just one of those pure. Audacious, incredible cinematic experiences. Uh, Fat City, which we watched for the John Houston episode. Um, I oh, love has one of my favorite endings. Rediscover oh, one of my God. favorite. You know, I rediscovered that I love boxing movies. I've always been like a huge, huge fan of the original Rocky, but I didn't know that I liked all boxing movies until I saw Fat City and the setup in the same year.
0: Oh God, the setup. Yeah, I'm... yeah. So... You know, there needs to be a, a boxing movie that takes place in a
1: submarine, and you. That, have... Then, I, then I would be set. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But Fat City, I mean, the thing I like a lot about boxing and boxing movies is that boxing can be a metaphor for, like, being a blue-collar worker, for just being in the lower class and just trying to eke out a living. Um, It's a very literal and physical uh, representation of what it feels like to just make ends meet and to put yourself in harm's way to do so. And Fat City is the ultimate expression of that uh, Mm -hmm. boxing-as-blue-collar class struggle. Um, Point Blank, which... You and you you forced me to watch it, and you're like, no, 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 you have to see Point Blank. I tied you to a chair. You tied me to a chair and watch it, and I was all the happier for it. Amazing Lee Marvin thriller that has a weird dreamy quality. Uh, I saw Ollie Fury that The Soul. Um, oh, man. For our uh, uh, Fassbinder episode. Incredible, incredible melodrama. The episode
0: that and, almost killed me. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Hiroshima Monomore, uh, which is another oh. sort of next level. It's almost like... It's, it's like a French New Wave brief encounter where it's half brief encounter and half a documentary about nuclear fallout,
3: <laughs> um,
1: and it, it's incredible. It's so it was, good. Tell yeah, I've I got, I got it on Blu-ray for Christmas, and I'm going to watch it again real I soon. I saw it at
0: the Cisco Center. That was my first experience of it, and I went I freaked out. It I saw so
1: good. earlier in 2015. I saw Flirting with Disaster, mm-hmm. which I think is maybe the greatest uh, modern screwball comedy ever. Um, Still my favorite David O. Russell movie. Yeah, yeah, mine too, for sure. I mean, I'm not even as big a fan of David O. Russell as you, but Floating Disaster is incredible. Yes. And then, number 10, I went to the Music Box of Horrors. Uh, It was all 35mm prints this year. Um, I stuck around until 5am. I was barely conscious, but I had to stick around because we had the only remaining celluloid print of *Extro* in existence (laughs) in the world, and... I it was it's an, it has a notorious reputation but all I really yeah. knew about it was that it was this alien ripoff. and Jim Jim had seen it like a month before and he said I was oh yeah this like, movie is totally fucked up
0: I was half awake and half asleep watching that movie Yeah okay so and you were in perfect, a similar state Yeah it's
1: perfect state to watch it It was like a religious experience but like a bad yeah. religion yeah. like it was <laughs> like like when Indiana Jones um and and Short Round and and Willie Scott, like, all witnessed the heart being torn out of the chest. Oh, my like God. It was, like, witnessing that sort of religious thing. It feels... It's, like, it's every bit as nightmarish and horrifying as something like The Beyond by Fulci. Um, there's parts of it for sure, yeah. There's, uh, but there's, a, there's, there's like a, a mundanity to it as yeah. well that makes it more upsetting. Um, yeah. Extro is one of the craziest and most powerful film experience I ever had is by far the most, the best experience I had in a movie theater. And that included seeing a 70 millimeter print of hateful eight. (laughs) Uh, I'll tell you a 35 millimeter print of hateful of *Extro* at five in the morning. After you've been watching horror movies for 14 hours, that beats it.
3: Yeah. I think I saw that same print actually of *Extro* because there's, there can't be that many. And I think maybe two years ago, three years ago, there's a Philadelphia group called exhumed films that does, 35 millimeter screenings of old exploitation horror films. Yeah. And wow. they have like a, um, 24 hour horror marathon where you show up spending like what, like 50 bucks, you know, 40 bucks to get in, but they don't tell you any of the films in advance. So oh, you just awesome. show up, you just show up hoping for the best. Yeah. And I think extra was like the fourth or fifth film of the day. And I'd seen it on videotape like, God, like 20 years ago. But, uh, I agree. On the big screen, it was like a revelation. Uh, it is definitely a film worthy of uh, properly being rediscovered. It's the, like the uh, that's like the animal, like the, like the little toys. Oh yeah, the around. toys
0: come to life at one point it's, and uh, like stalk the neighbor, the old the elderly lady, right? The, yeah.
1: The, the, and a man crushes snake eggs into his mouth and, like, swallows the yolk.
0: Yeah, there's a part where it was, like, blisters on a tummy or something. Oh, God. It, it was gross. Yeah. It's
1: so upsetting. It's so <laughs> amazing. Um, so, anyway, that was my ten best films I saw for the first time this year.
0: Holy crap, Patrick. Yeah. How can I top that list? Well, you can give me your own. Um, my number ten is Wake from Fright. Uh,
1: yes, very good. Is, I saw that seeing, this year as well.
0: And, boy, that movie made me want to drink a lot of beer. But it didn't make me want to go to Australia. Uh, but I, I, I've I've realized, especially after watching not quite from Hollywood, or was it not quite Hollywood? Not quite, not Hollywood. quite Hollywood. Yeah, not quite Hollywood. That I do have a thing for the Osploitation genre. I, I there's something about it that really appeals to me, and I don't know if it's just like, you know, walkabouts one of my favorite movies and I watched it an impressionable time when I was sort of developing my taste in cinema and just there's something about the the landscapes and the barrenness of it all that just grabbed me. And then, of course, I I just like uh, movies where masculinity is put to the test and, you know, it it, it sort of becomes in ruins in in, in so many ways. And what can you say about Donald Pleasance acting totally creepy and weird for that movie? So uh,
1: yeah, his, his one movie where he gets act creepy and weird. Yeah, <laughs> of course, but it's yeah, it's so weird too, and I mean, I, it's I, funny because it keeps it's it's one of those movies that it keeps threatening to become a horror movie, yeah, and in a way, it is a thinking. horror movie, but it uh, never in a way you expect.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: That's exactly it. And
0: you know, there's there's some animal cruelty in involved, but uh at the same time, it's 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 it's, it's allegorical and really fascinating to, to experience this man's uh, degradation and self-destruction. You know, he, he sort of thought he was going to end up one way and he doesn't. And I yeah. like that. I like that experience in watching a movie where, you know, some guy thinks he, he knows things and then he finds out, oh, no, I am actually uh, really fallible. <laughs> so number nine is uh, Blue Collar, which um, Bill and I talked about at length for the Paul Schrader episode. <laughs> yeah. And I... Can't get over how wonderful that still shot of Yafet Koto, uh, Richard Pryor, and Hyreen Keitel all sitting on a couch and just sort of hashing out whether or not they want to um, rob the, their union. Um, and that one shot speaks for the entire movie, but it's also the last shot they filmed. And Richard Pryor hated being on that set. And like the moment that shot is over, he walked. Walked off the set, walked into his car, drove off, and then had nothing to do with the production afterwards. It was, and it just—you could just tell, like watching the loneliness and all those people, and sort of like there's a huge disconnect, and it's appropriate for that particular scene. I don't know, man. Blue collar just really, really, I, I really, really
1: enjoyed listening to you to talk about this movie on the Paul Schrader episode. It's oh, so good, you. right, Bill?
3: Yeah, I think <laughs> it's a masterpiece. I think, yeah. I mean. I, we've talked about it plenty of times, you know, <laughs> Yeah,
0: I, I, I just can't get over how good that is. It nice. is, um, is a really weird subversive movie to where I'm not sure how much I loved it. Although I know I loved it and I need to watch it again. It's pennies from heaven. Oh, uh, the nice. Steve Martin, Bernadette Peters, Christopher Walken musical that is extremely dark. It's like, it's, it's like dancer in the dark, kind of. Um, where a musical number will erupt to counteract a depressing thing that's happening to one of the characters. And it's sort of uplifting, and it's, but at the same time it's really sad. And it takes place during the Great Depression, of course, and um, it's it's one of those love at first sight kind of stories, but it's got a weird sensibility to it. I, I could not understand exactly what the movie was trying to capture other than this is how I felt watching Dancer in the Dark, especially with the... And not, I don't want to give anything away, but just see Pennies from Heaven and get back to me, because I'm curious to know more about people's reactions to this movie.
3: That was actually the first Steve Martin film I saw as a kid.
0: Wow. <laughs> <That's> odd. Yeah. <laughs> Cause this and this, you know, I just I just saw this for the first time this year, and I'm yeah. a huge Steve Martin fan, and I'm surprised it's it's taken me so long. Number seven is uh, Dare Fan, a, AKA Trance, which okay. I'm not sure I, I'm not sure if you recommended this to me, Bill, or I may I,
3: have. I it's, if, my, it, it's my favorite. Yeah, it's one of my favorites, and it, uh, it, the Blu-ray was my favorite Blu-ray of this year.
0: Yeah, it's it's a lot like May. Um, but at the same time, it has, you know, a, a, you know, a stalker quality with, you know, what she's, you know, she's really, really, really in love with this musician. Um,
3: it's, it's a musician, right? That she's... Yeah, she's obsessed with like a Krautrock electro, yeah, like kraut rock. Di- like a Bowie-ish kind of new romantic musician.
0: Yeah. And it goes in places you do not expect at all. Um, it's... It will stick with you long after you see it. Um, number six is Out of the Past. It's a Robert Mitchum movie from the uh, 50s, I believe. Um, Jacques
1: Tourneur. Okay. Yeah, this, is, this is not the Robert Mitchum where he reprised it in the 70s.
3: That's Farewell, My
1: Lovely. Farewell, yes, yeah, My yeah. Lovely. Okay. So yeah, this yeah, is yeah. Out of the Past. This is the original.
0: Yes. Um, number five is Point Blank, which we just talked about. Yeah. Number four is Chilly Scenes of Winter. Thank you, Bill.
1: You're this welcome. is one of the best. I don't know what this movie is. This, this is, is one this. of the
0: best um, sort of doomed relationship stories. It's about a man who falls in love with a married woman, and uh, they sort of
3: strike up a relationship, and it's really heartbreaking. It,
1: it, what what era time, is it, this? It was made in
3: 1979. Um, yeah. It was the third feature from is uh, uh, it Joan Micklin Silver, um, and it was. Um, based on a novel by Anne Beatty. It was, it's like this independent film with John Hurd and Mary Beth Hurt as the central couple. Um, just kind of like a melancholy, quirky, like, rom- like, I guess it's a romantic comedy technically, but it's about obsession more than it's about romance. Like yeah. it's about his almost stalking this woman that he's like fixated on this like brief relationship he had, but it's like played kind of like for like, kind of like, uh, like slightly heavy-hearted laughs, I guess. It, it reminds me of it,
0: modern romance a little bit. Very much.
3: Yeah, that's that's a good yeah. comparison.
0: And, of course, you know how I feel about modern romance. Sure. Number three is The Breaking Point, which we talked at length about at just last episode for Michael Curtiz. Uh-huh. Which, um, again, one of the most shocking endings of a movie from that era. Number two is A Face in the Crowd. Um,
1: I got to see this this yes, year. Yes, you do. Yeah.
0: Yes, you do. That's all I'm going to say. Sure. Everybody needs to see this movie if they haven't. It's like the network of its time, in a way, but only better. Um, And number one is Alan King's A Married Couple, which is one of the most emotionally naked documentaries I've ever seen. It's him just putting a camera in um, a married couple's home and watching them interact together for 90 minutes. You talked about this on an episode this year, right? I don't know if I have. I feel like we've talked about it. We've talked about it for sure and I included a clip for the clip party. I have never seen a movie that captures my parents' relationship so well. It was it made me feel so many feelings that I can't even begin to describe and the fact that like some of the things they say I used to overhear when I was 6 years old, it like triggered memories in my brain that I've forgotten about watching this movie. And the, the the really raw intimacy of seeing these two people argue and decide whether or not they want to stay together and remembering my parents having that conversation was just like a flood of emotion. And also the filmmaking in this is just unlike anything I've seen. Um, it reminded me a lot of that uh, documentary 17, which I have told you about before, right. which was part of the, um, is it Middletown?
3: documentary series yeah it'll be coming up again in a few seconds
1: okay well then that's a great transition <laughs> okay so yeah bill what, what are your ter- uh, real quick what are your top 10 uh first well time i don't do even know if i
3: put 10 together but i'll tell you what i i i put a couple together because sure. i don't know how many we were talking about i so my my most uh happy experience as a as a film lover this year was finally catching up with a documentary called demon lover diary and it's um by joel DeMott. And she had made this film. Uh, she had shot like this little documentary uh, while they were working on a horror film, a 70s horror film called The Demon Lover. And I'd heard about this film, but I, it, it's never come out on home video. It's just something I'd heard like was around on the bootleg scene. Like I'd read about it in zines. And I just would wonder what it would be. Um, and sometimes it shows up on YouTube and it showed up on YouTube. So one morning like around dawn, I got up, I found it on there just like randomly made a pot of coffee and I just sat and watched this thing. It was the greatest, you know, movie watching experience I had all year. Uh, it's just like this cinema verite kind of thing. Um, but it's dealing with like seventies horror. It's dealing with like personality clashes and like an uncomfortable feeling. And I guess you could compare it to something like American movie, like, but with like even less of a budget than that had. Um, at one point, a very famous, awful seventies rock star shows up randomly. I won't spoil it in case you ever do get to see it, but, um, I, I saw it and I was just flabbergasted and Joel DeMott had come to New York with Seventeen uh, as part of a series of like alternate eighties films uh at at BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music. It was like um they were like doing all this like counter programming of like eighties films like you know, things like Blue Velvet or like Errol Morris and uh Jim Jarmusch. And um so Seventeen is like equally amazing in its own way like this portrait of like high school in uh, in like you know, Middle America and like racial tensions and it, it just that that actually got a proper release finally this year by coincidence through Icar- I think Icarus Films put it out but um, sounds familiar yeah yeah this is the year definitely where I like found this woman's films and you know, I I feel like they more more people should find them they're absolutely phenomenal um, I also finally caught up after owning it for like at least fifteen years I finally caught up with Agnes Varda's Vagabond. Which uh, is about this uh, young female drifter, uh, Sandr- Sandrine Bonaire plays her. I, I don't you know what to say, but it. it's just really powerful. Um,
0: I'll so finally last- be
3: watching that this year for the Varda episode. So it's on Hulu Plus Criterion
1: put it out, and well, it's. Okay. I think you'll love it. I think it's amazing. Um, last. I rented chance- out a copy of Vagabond to someone not four days ago.
2: <gasps> <laughs>
1: oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's it's one that like I've had friends like tell me it's great and I'm like, Yeah, I know, I just I
3: never got a you know, everyone has those kind of lists of films that you just hear are great for years. That one just really blew me away. Um, uh Last Chance for a Slow Dance was another film I had been hunting down for a long, long time. I think um Fugazi had a song with a similar title that was named after it on their fourth record, or I don't know, it's maybe the technically the third yeah, record. Yeah, that sounds familiar too. Um, they, they changed the title spelling a little bit. But so anyway, and I think it's also in that like 1001 films to see before you die. But it's like, it, it, I don't know if I've ever had a home video release. So finally, I just wrote to John Jost, the guy that made it. And it's like from 1977, like this, like this, like very, very low budget road movie that ultimately ends in like a dark way. I don't, I don't want to spoil any of it, but it's, I feel like Patrick, you especially would probably really like it if you ever get a chance to see it. I don't know how easy it is to find it. Um, I bought it off of him for like, I don't know, like 20 or $30. And then he actually came to Philly and, um, I talked to him about it and it's, I don't know if you can find it. It's a really interesting, you know, road movie that makes Badlands look like, you know, close encounters in terms of like budget and scale. It's like, it's very low budget, but I mean, for people that seek out like those offbeat seventies, new Hollywood films, like this is the real, I mean, this is the real independent side of that. Hmm. Um, I saw a film called Losing Ground, which um, was part of this kind of like alternative, uh, like black independent films of the uh, 70s and 80s kind of retrospective that was at uh, Film Society of Lincoln Center, New York. Um, Kathleen Collins made it. I think it might. I don't know if this is totally true because you never know, but I heard it was the first feature film made by African-American woman uh, that got a release. Um, it actually has a couple of people that were involved in the film ganja and hess bill gunn who is the director of that and um dwayne jones who most people probably know from night living dead um but it's interesting it's it's very low budget but it like it deals with like um very unstereotypical black characters um it deals with like a married couple and like them staying like in this town away from the city and uh Kind of spoiling the plot, but it's more behavior and character driven than plot driven. Um, But really terrific, and you know something I never even heard of before this year. Um, I think it was yeah, she died in nineteen eighty eight. I think it was like maybe early eighties when it came out. I don't remember the year. Um, And then the last thing I wanted to mention was Angst, the German film, which I know Jim you also saw, and uh, that actually played in a few theaters. I want to say the guy behind Grindhouse releasing. Um, was responsible for getting it in a few cities over the course of the year, and then it came out through the DVD label Cult Epics on Blu-ray. Uh, I don't know what to say. It's I would compare it to things like Henry Porte of a serial killer, meets something like um, I don't know, if, you know. You heard of a film called Tenderness of the Wolves? It was like, what, made by one of the guys. It was like a part of Fassbender's inner circle. But like no. this, like real rough serial killer film from cool. the early '80s. Uh, I thought it was. Fantastic and really intense. Um,
0: it's very Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer.
3: Yeah, Gabe, yeah.
1: Gabe talked about that on the uh, on the horror episode. I
3: think he did. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I mean, for 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 jaded horror art types that listen to your show, I think if they haven't already seen it, it's it's worth tracking down. Um, that's about for what I prepared. Really, I mean, there's I've, I saw a lot of other great films, but those were oh, first. Yeah, ones we came to me. we
0: saw some goodies. Yeah, we sure did, guys. We sure did. Yeah. Yeah. Um hold on I wanna I wanna go pee real quick and grab another beer.
1: ready to start talking about what we consider the best films of the year, but before we do that, we have a lot of uh, ancillary kind of awards uh, to get to. Um, We sure do. Consider this the Director's Club's Oscars. Uh, There we go. Thank (laughs) you. Can you go ahead ahead and use that voice and introduce this?
0: Okay, everybody. We are about to do the Director's Club Oscars, and these are many categories.
3: Um...
0: (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> your career. I <laughs> no wonder your career and, and as an AM off. radio host never took off. No, nah, that's okay. Um, so we I, got, I'm not good at improvising. Yeah, we got a, we got a long, uh, list of categories. Uh, some are like best actor, best director, that sort of thing. Some are a little crazier or weirder. Um, we all have, are looking at the same list, right?
0: Um,
1: yeah. yeah. Are we going to start out with, uh, the movie that
0: started out great? Cause that, that should have been, I don't know why that was omitted, but it was.
1: Sure. Um, For me, uh, started well, finished poorly. I think The Gift is really well-directed, but I think that movie doesn't go anywhere. Uh, I think that movie's really terrible. It's really trashy and silly. Yeah. I didn't hate it. I I, was interested to see how it was going to play out. And on a similar tack, I think the one one that actually wins this for me, this is film that starts off well and then just kind of fizzles out, and you're like, oh, what happened? Uh, For me, it's Ex Machina, because I think... I think the direction of that movie is really cool. I think it establishes a really cool mood and tone. um, But I think the main character of that film is so unbelievably stupid that... (laughs) Dom Hell Gleason? uh, If that's the name of the actor. I don't know his name. Um, Because Oscar Isaac is the... No, no, no. I'm not talking about Oscar Isaac. I'm talking about the main character. Like, he, he... It takes him so... Like, I was so ahead of him the entire movie that I was like, well, maybe, maybe I think I'm ahead of him. But actually, I don't know. No, okay. I know what's going on. Uh, ex-Machinos are really disappointing from for it's movie because for you're me. so smart, Patrick. I, it's just... It's, it is. It's, it's true. just like if, when he goes to a place where they say they're making robots and then, there's a, and then there's a maid there who's acting like a robot and he never asks if that maid is a robot or yeah. not. I don't know what you're <laughs> supposed to think.
0: That's a good call. I, even I knew that. Well, yeah. obviously that's a
1: robot. Right, yeah. So, and
0: obviously Oscar Isaac is fucking them all.
1: Right. It's, I think that's a really interesting movie, but I think that movie failed. I think that's... a Interesting movie for what it says about male gays and stuff, but I think it, that movie ultimately fails because it doesn't actually work textually as a thriller.
0: Although hmm. I, I do regret not including that in the clip party for a dance scene. There you go. That was a good, that's a, that's a great good dance scene. Uh, Jim, a good what good is your
1: started well, finished poorly film?
0: I think Bill knows my answer.
3: Uh, I, I'm not sure if I do.
0: It is Sleeping With Other People.
3: Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that is because... It started out as an above-average romantic comedy that around like the 45-minute mark to an hour, it had scenes that were taken directly from my life where you develop a friendship with somebody that sort of gets a little out of hand. Um, and unfortunately, this movie really gets stupid with the last 20 minutes or so it really becomes formulae conventional when harry met sally romantic comedy and it really made me mad because there is a perfect moment where this movie could have ended on sort of a bittersweet melancholy note and it chose to do this horrible thing where it like compromises the character's beliefs and ideals and it just sort
1: of drove me nuts. Did like, and Brie a- do a cheerleading routine to Uptown Girl? <laughs> You're getting to mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, go ahead, Bill. What's yours? Yeah, It's Trainwreck,
3: um, which I thought, you know, I mean, I thought it started strong and interesting. And um, like that character, I thought was a very unique protagonist for a mainstream comedy. Sure. And... Um, I don't know at what point it kind of goes off the rails, but, like, it starts getting into that funny people territory with, like, too many guest cameos. Oh, the group there. And by the end, it becomes, like, just like every other really bad rom-com. And it's it's a shame because I I think there's a lot that's strong about it. And I want to kind of like the, um, you know, the Jed Apatow directorial career. Like, I know he's not trying to just redo... You know the the slacker comedies that like were his first real big hits as a director. I I just think it doesn't work at, at a certain point. I'm trying to think where it really does, but um, but yeah, by the end it's like I'm, I'm left with all the worst scenes in my memory, and so I walk up thinking it's kind of a bad film, and it's it's just kind of uneven. I think yeah. there's a lot that's interesting about it in the first half. There's too
0: many detours in his movies that just don't yeah. work. I don't know why. Well, they're fa- I mean, maybe they're he's
3: fascinatingly th- undisciplined, yeah. and I know he has cited Cassavetes as an influence. Which oh, 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 I ah. mean, we might all laugh about that like loudly, but it's like, yeah, I mean, like that, that tendency towards you know using the family and you know making these kind of like meandering, like overstuffed, kind of uh,
1: almost plotless kind of films at times. I think um, I think one of the you know most puzzling things about going to the movies this year it wasn't that. Everyone went nuts over Mad Max and I didn't. For me, (laughs) it was that everyone went nuts over um, LeBron James' performance in Trainwreck. Did they? Yeah, they were like, oh man, this movie sucks, but LeBron James is secretly the funniest guy in it. I thought LeBron James was like when you have an eight-year-old and it keeps cutting (laughs) to them right before they say their line because they were just fed their lines by an assistant director off camera. Like every time LeBron James had a line, it would just like cut to a close-up and he goes, but I want to watch Downton Abbey or whatever. <laughs> I thought he was like uh, unbelievably terrible in this movie. Um yeah. and yeah. everyone went nuts over him. Uh,
0: I, I just, I just don't think the guest cameos. No, he's, got, it, I mean, he's, he's got to knock like that shit out. Eminem no. and funny people and stuff. It just. He thinks, he thinks he's
1: being crowd pleasing, I think, because uh, it's like it's, almo- so it's almost like an SNL tendency or something like, yeah. like it's the part yeah. where the real Janet Reno walks on stage next to Will Ferrell dresses Janet Reno and everyone applauds like, it's, oh, look, it's well, Madonna
0: coming in for coffee talk.
1: Right. You know? Yeah. Have you have,
3: have you seen those films in the theater? Do audiences react positively when famous people? I think they absolutely
1: do. Yeah. yeah. So that's why he's doing yeah. it. But I think I think it hobbles the films in a real like serious right. way. Right. I don't think the people walk out like I mean, I guess Trainwreck has actually been very popular in my store. People really like that movie. So Trainwreck was it's like okay. the, one of the most successful
3: films of yeah. the year. Yeah. And and for non-franchise films like it's a it's a it's a you know global blockbuster. Yeah, yeah. So,
0: yeah, it's much like Sleeping with but, Other People. I think they're
1: okay romantic comedies that could have been great. And I mean Amy Schumer's one of the funniest people just on her television show, not yeah. on film. So maybe, yeah. maybe, hopefully, the success of this will you lead should, her to do a good movie. You
0: should just all watch her 12
1: watch her twelve Angry Men parody. That was a very good episode. Um, uh, the Jim slash Patrick is Crazy Award. I'm scared to hear this one. Um, this one isn't really directed towards you as much as directed towards everyone, including a lot of people who sent in top ten lists, which we'll be getting to a little later. Uh-oh, I know where this is going. Um, I- Queen of Earth is one of the worst films I saw this year. It's slightly better than Eli Roth's Knock Knock, which I thought was absolutely (laughs) useless. Queen of Earth is only 98% useless. I think it is terrible. I think the writing is incredibly bad, like really laughably terribly bad. And the idea that anyone likes Queen of Earth is baffling to me. And you'd like Queen of Earth, so you happen to get the brunt of this, but like, you know... (laughs) I'm not. I'm not mad or anything, but like I thought, Queen of Earth was one of the worst movies I've seen in a long time. That was critically praised.
3: I think somebody else think, here agrees. Yeah, I think it's the worst film of the year. Yeah, I actually think it's worse than Knock Knock. Wow. Um, but yeah, I, I you know, I, I Jim and I have talked about this a lot. Yeah, I, I, I understand that people do like it, but I think it's, I think it's laughably bad. I think it's really, really terrible. Um, and I, it's weird to me when people really respond to it and a lot of people do and I just I've shown it to people to show them like look isn't this terrible and they're like oh it's kind of okay but
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't know I mean I just I just tear the dialogue and I'm just like it just sounds ridiculous it's really dead this, this over reliance is smothering was the line suffocating this, no uh, smothering I think is the line oh. uh, it was the line that cracked this over-reliance, yeah. not on me, not your over-reliance on me or our over-reliance on each other. This over-reliance is Suffolk is smothering. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah. It's terrible. Well, it, it
3: also takes a lot of visual quotes from one of my favorite films, which is let's go Jessica yes. to death. And I think that also kind of like, I think that's what makes it personal for me rather than just like, Oh, well, he tried to do something else. I didn't mind the color wheel or listen up Philip. So it's not like I have, you know, a grudge against Alex Ross Perry. Um, it's just kind of, like I just I didn't think that film right. particularly worked. I
0: have an interesting relationship with this movie. Um, having interviewed Alex Ross Perry and having uh, listened to the commentary and having watched his special bonus feature, I actually don't like it as much as I did when I first saw it. I um, I think it has to do with almost looking at it more microscopically and being attuned to some of the lines. Like there there's certainly antagonistic moments that feel very, very, very forced. And there's like a there's there was a line at one point where Elizabeth Moss turns to Catherine Waters and says, I love you, you stupid brat and I just like went, hmm, that's really horrible. so there there were there were definite moments upon a rewatch where I kinda went, Yeah, you know what? That is that is really bad. So why didn't I pick up on it the first time? But I will say that I like the mood, I like the cinematography, and I really like Elizabeth Moss' performance. I think anytime she's in front of a canvas and uh, doing a portrait of Catherine Watterson, I think those scenes are great. Um, but I will say I am not a fan of the uh, party. That 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 is that is that is the part I can laugh oh, at. Like
1: now. the freak out one hundred and one, where it's just people yeah. reaching right. their hand
0: towards the I camera. I think now that where is it, be- it becomes, I think, yeah, that's it becomes
3: laughable. it becomes a reference to the scene where the uh, the ghouls are hovering over Jessica in the bed. Yes, in you know, Let's Get Jessica. Yes, to die. I think yes, it yes. might also be.
1: I think I think I also saw Polanski cited for that same scene. Sure. So. Oh, well, yeah. Maybe.
3: Well, that's m- most critics would have seen Polanski and not seen John Hancock's movie. I sent sure. I sent the trailer to Queen of Earth to John Hancock. Um, I said, I think someone likes your movie, <laughs> and, uh, and he wrote back and he's like, "Oh God, yes." Yeah.
1: <laughs> so yeah. anyway,
0: uh, he, what, he's, he's, yeah, I can I can go on, but we'll we'll save. Yeah, it.
1: what's you what's your Patrick is crazy award?
0: Um, I th- I just I was surprised that you, your lukewarm response to Man Max Fury Road. I yeah,
1: we'll s- talk about that later. Yeah, I was just kind of like, oh, he didn't love it, huh? Okay. Yeah, we can do, we can dig into that later. I, I have, really I really have, have like a reason like a, for it, but. We'll talk about that later, Bill. Okay. This do you- is almost like a like a bonus episode where Patrick and I agree on everything. Yeah, it's it's odd. It's <laughs> odd. Bill, do you have a Jim or Patrick is crazy award? You know, I you know the, the
3: closest I got. I mean, I really didn't have a lot that I disagree with you guys strongly on this year. Uh, the closest I could come up with, and I don't really feel like strongly about it, is is actually Patrick your your take on uh, all Talking Head uh, documentaries being innately worthless. Yeah, um, I think. You know, I, I don't really quite get that. Just because I think that, like, what I think your argument is that they're formally uninteresting and they could probably be replicated as a, a magazine piece or like a, uh, a printed piece. Right. Is that, yeah, is that pretty much? Just, I feel like the tone of voice is missing in a printed version. And maybe that's the only thing yeah. I can think of is like, do what really kind of. Makes it d-
1: distinguishes it because otherwise, I, I, I understand the logic of what you're saying. I feel right? like tone of yeah. voice is often missing. I mean, depending on if you're actually talking about specific interview subjects, yes, you can't literally hear the tone of their voice, but I think yeah. tone of voice is missing from the author of those documentaries. Yeah, whereas a nonfiction piece often you can, yeah. like, you know, a good New York Times article can have so much personality and stuff while actually just saying the facts just by subtle use of, you know, how the facts are presented.
3: Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I I understand the argument intellectually. I just think think that's the closest I could come up with to something that I felt like was worthy of the category. And
1: it's like, it's not really crazy. It's like, I don't really agree. We got to get through (laughs) these a little bit faster. So I'm just going to say, hardest I laughed, is uh, yeah. probably Everything at Mimi Claire's House and Mistress America. with Oh uh, my god! Your, that is mine that's too. too. Okay, Ta- The Donut Shop climax in Tangerine is a close second. I had a and real it. trouble determining which of those I thought was the funnier movie, but Everything at Mimi Claire's House is next level incredible screwball comedy antics from Lombok yeah. uh-huh. and Gerwig. That is exactly what I had in mind too. Uh,
0: my runner-up my runner would be uh, Udo Kier's mustache in The Forbidden Room. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Is that, that, is that, that whole bit yeah. is. I got
1: to see that high. movie. Uh, best use of the do. song for me. I had a couple: "Sympathy for the Devil" in "Focus" and uh, "White Bird" uh, in "Focus." That is so weird. Are both I think are both so well used. Because, like, I am sick of Sympathy for that. Oh, no, no, I, I, I am I'm sick of it. I think, it's used,
0: I think it's used so well. That moment in Focus, I finally saw that, and I don't think I logged on Letterboxd, but I finally saw that, and I was like, damn, this is my kind of movie. It's really fun. I like Focus I like, a lot. I like, I, like
1: good, I like good con man movies. Yeah. Um, when they're done well. And then White Bird is the song that plays when the hitman is getting himself into a car accident. Oh,
0: yeah. That whole okay. sequence is yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah.
1: So I bet White Bird and Folk is also good. And then the opening, the Cat's Eye song, the opening credits to Duke and Burgundy was very <laughs> good. But my number one oh, yeah. just has to be Wonderwall in Mommy. <laughs> like it is the it is the tour de force kind of moment in that movie. and I But it like completely works on me. I think Wonderwall and Mommy is to- so moving, and I think that is a really good use of the song. And
0: mine, uh, mine, uh, mine is Colorblind. The kind oh, of
1: from Mommy. From Mommy. Okay, yeah, same, same principle. And my runner-up would be Girls Just Want to Have Fun from Anomalisa. That's a very good one. Bill? Yeah, I, uh, I had
3: um, Maggot Brain from Funkadelic in the Ménage à Trois sequence from Gaspar Noé's Love as my number one, mm. uh, but I had souvenir from orchestral maneuvers in the dark and Mistress America and Diamonds from Rihanna in the film Girlhood as my runners up.
0: You know, I just discovered that I'm mean, like I've heard that uh, I've heard that uh, souvenir song many times, and I never uh, I never knew who did it, and I finally just I just latched onto that song so much after that movie. It's almost like that. Um, the use of everyone's a winner in Francis. Ha-ha. Yeah, it has yeah. very similar music yeah. choices
1: to Francis. Ha. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: So I was just like, oh man, I love these songs now even more after seeing them in this in this movie.
1: I'm very bad at uh, best line of dialogue because I wasn't keeping notes the whole year, so I just had to run back and try to remember something. But I remember laughing the entire theater laughing extremely hard at the line in Hateful Eight. Yeah, Warren, that's the problem with old men. You can kick them down the stairs and say it's an accident, <laughs> but you can't shoot them. Yep. That is a great line. <laughs> mine is, um, how could I know
0: what I want if I say yes to everything? From? Carol. Uh-huh. That moment. Mine is.
1: Ugh, oh, God. sorry.
3: Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I, 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 mine was, I thought I might actually go to college. I'm not an amputee <laughs> from Mistress and <America. laughs>
1: So, yeah, this <laughs> was probably full of them. I just didn't have like, Oh yeah. There's so heads.
0: many of that. They just come flying at you. Yeah. in That movie.
1: That, that is the perfect, that is like kicking and screaming. That is the perfect background at the video store movie. Oh
0: God.
1: Yeah. Um, best action sequence. Obviously for me, it just has to be the f- climax of Fury Road. Of course. Yep. That's all. <laughs> that's all I need. My, yeah. Mine
3: was actually the skydiving scene from Kingsman.
1: Oh yes. That was uh, good.
3: Do you know that yeah. scene? Yeah, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know. For some reason, it worked for me, and I, you know, wasn't totally on board with every part of that film, but that that particular scene, um, it worked. for me. Yeah, it was good. Me. Maybe I'll see it sometime. It's it's worth seeing. Okay. It's it's neat. It's it, it has a very unexpected Ken Russell tribute <sighs> at the
0: end. I heard it, there's uh, Free
1: Bird in it, and that's just like, oh god. It's a kind of a cool moment. Okay, um, I'll take your word for it. Best newcomer, uh, I think. Probably for me it would be Mia Taylor, who plays Alexandra in uh, Tangerine. Oh yeah, that's a good choice. I couldn't think of many other newcomers than the the two leads of Tangerine, but I thought she was very good. I liked Lola Kirk in Mistress America and Sarah Snook
0: from Predestination.
3: Okay. Yeah. I might I might mispronounce both their names, but I have Belle Pauley from Diary of a Teenage Girl. Oh yeah. And uh and uh, Felix DeGivry, uh, who's the lead in the Mia Hansen love film Eden, I don't think he'd ever starred in a movie before that. And I thought he was really good at it. So that seemed to fit the definition of newcomer. So he's my runner up. <laughs>
1: um, so for ensemble, I had a bunch. I, I don't know how many it takes to be an ensemble. If three is all it takes to be an ensemble, then I'd say mommy is up there. Um <laughs> Otherwise, I would say it's probably split between Spotlight and Hateful Eight. Yep. That's I really what I like got. watching the characters of Spotlight work together. I really like uh, the characters of Hateful Eight fall apart.
0: Yep. That's all I got. Yeah. I,
1: <laughs> yeah, I
3: had Mistress America, but Hateful Eight would be definitely a runner-up for. Me.
1: Yeah, Mistress America was also one of my runners-up. Mm-hmm. Um, for most nail-biting moment, I'd say the part in It Follows where Kelly is tied to the chair. Yeah, that's a good choice. I went with the uh, robbery scene
0: in Victoria. Okay. Um, this is a movie that's all sh- It's all one take. Right. So it's really intense. Um, I highly recommend it, but it did not make my list. So everybody should see it, though.
3: Yeah, I I had um, the will they or will they not give the female heroine uh, female circumcision in The Green Inferno is my number oh, one. Oh, yeah. And the dogfight
1: in uh, White God. Was my runner-up. Oh yeah, that that I don't. I'm not a huge fan of White Cop, but that was a good. That was a good sequence. You still need to see
3: that. Yeah, yeah when um, not to spoil anything, but when that scene wrapped up, the audience burst into the loudest applause I've seen in a in a Hungarian film. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's
1: funny. yeah, my whole audience got real mad at the movie, even though there was that message before the movie started that these were all rescue dogs who were saved after the filming and no one was hurt. Like, that movie... That scene was so upsetting. I think my audience had the opposite reaction, and they just got real mad that they were forced to watch it. Um, oh. <laughs> movie that made you hungry? I couldn't think of anything, but I did see Two Days, One Night this year. Yeah. And I learned watching Two Days, One Night that in France, when a family gets a pizza, they all get their own pizza? Which I think is a great system. <laughs> Yeah. Wow! Do you remember that scene? I don't remember that. She, they they come home, like, we'll get pizza, and they come home with four boxes of pizza, and they each eat their own, like, small pizza. Oh, that's is, a great idea. It's It was wonderful. I, as someone who's constantly eyeing the last slice and being like, that motherfucker already had too many slices. I can't believe he's looking at that one. Like... I think the I think the French method of pizza distribution is superior to the American method.
0: Patrick, I was what? so hungry yeah. when we were watching Hateful Eight, I hadn't eaten oh. since, <laughs> I, hadn't eat, I hadn't eaten since like eleven AM or something. And then all of a sudden this stew yeah. this beef stew comes pouring out, and I'm like, Oh my god, I want stew.
1: That's funny.
3: That's funny because that's actually my choice for uh for movie that made you hungry also with the hateful eight. And I, I feel like Michael Moore should hear about the French distribution of pizza. Yeah. Uh, before, you know, the DVD comes out for, uh, where to invade next. next <laughs> cause I feel like that would be a good deleted. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. The, um, it's funny. I, the thing about that stew and hateful eight, it was, it did look good and it looked, and it was notable to me because I, whenever people are eating in a Western, I always get grossed out cause it always looks like the grossest food. Like, yeah, the long, Good. like, the long scene in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly where Lee Van Cleef, mm-hmm. uh, it, like, the, his introductory scene, and he's just eating all of their dinner. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I always thought that food looked so gross. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen, uh, like, a meal in a Western that I thought was appetizing until Hateful Eight. Um, I think most underrated uh, for me was probably Mommy. I didn't really hear anyone talk about it. Maybe... It's considered a 2014 movie for some people, but yeah, it, it got a theatrical release here in I feel like there's two. Is it, is it Xavier Dolan? Is that Yeah, right Dolan? His name? I feel like there's like two yeah. movies that have kind of gotten lost, or I mean, that lost, is but Tom just at the confused. The other yeah, one? I didn't see that one. I
0: know, but it's like people are including yeah. that for this year, and well, that, well, that, 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 got a, that,
1: that got a theatrical release this year. Oh, okay. Yeah, that made John Waters' list for the year. The, uh, yeah, the yeah, yeah. That,
0: that's where I saw it. Too. Yeah,
1: that played at the Gene Siskel for the first time this year. Hmm. Again, it's an, oh, it's an arbitrary free, division. I know. But, yeah. I was gonna say that's also, that? also for that's also for
3: available if you have Amazon Prime, it's included with
1: your membership. The, uh,
3: Mommy. the film.
1: No, uh, oh, oh, Time the
3: Farm. Time at the farm. Yeah. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah. Um Jim? Two Doors Nicole. Two Doors Nicole, sure. I didn't really hear anyone talk about that. It sounded really good. Mm-hmm. I didn't get a chance to see it unfortunately, but
3: um my underrated is is by the sea which not is is not like unspoken about but was like uh trashed pretty much everywhere that i heard about it um as the uh yeah. the of the uh the brad Pitt angelina jolie you know Geely, and it's yeah the the i, I uh,
0: think it's really the good
1: actress vanity project i
0: had no desire to see it but
3: um i'm curious yeah i think it's i think it's really
0: good i think that um you
3: know Ryan Gosling's Lost River also, the the whole notion of movie stars making uncommercial films only to be torn apart by the media that loves to write about them and everything else. I don't know. It's it's too bad because they both made good films and it's like they were treated like total turkeys. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot to recommend to both of them. And uh, Misunderstood from Asia Argento was totally buried. Now, again, you know, she's, you know actress turned director and plus Dario Argento's her dad. So the nepotism thing, um, you know, I think that like people that are already kind of good looking celebrities trying to make films, you know, they have all these other advantages, but not when it comes to reviews for their movies, they direct.
1: How, yeah. It's like, how dare you? Filmmakers look like Danny Boyle. They, <laughs> they, you know, that's what a director looks like. Exactly. <laughs> um, I think for me, the most overrated was, Mad Max Fury Road, not because it's a a bad movie, but just because it's not nearly the best movie of the year. Um, Well, it's not the best movie of the year, but... But, I, I mean, I think it is being put in a class that it doesn't belong because people have been so starved for shit, something that isn't bullshit, that they're just like, oh my god, we need to, this is the greatest, we gotta... Whereas, if you actually look at, I don't know, I mean, I have a different opinion, but I think Road Warrior is, like, way, way better a movie... Um, I should watch them back to back. And yeah, so it's like it's the second best Mad Max movie. It isn't the greatest film of the decade, the way it seems to be talked <laughs> about. That's, I mean, that's my opinion. Anyway, Ex yeah. Machina. Yeah, that's a that's a good one too. I don't. That's I don't see a good you one. Feel. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. I you know I mean I agree with both of you on those. Actually, Mad Max Fury Road. It's weird because it's. That's a film that made the largest cross section of people I know, from really snobby cinephiles to comic book geeks to mainstream Joe Blow blockbuster lovers. Like they all seem to really like it. So it seems kind of, uh, you know, kind of petulant for me to to rate it as overrated right. when I'm like one of like like twenty people that think. That. Yeah. Um. So I actually, even though I like the film, um, I'm gonna go with Spotlight. Uh, is the film that because only because I think that it has like these, um, these biases towards it because it, it, it it romanticizes journalists. (laughs) So I feel like that makes critics more likely. And also almost every people, you know, everyone writing about it is probably also like anti-Catholic church. Right. So it makes it really easy (laughs) to make them the villain. So I feel like when I compare it to Zodiac or I compare it to all the president's men, um, the, the atmosphere, and I'm gonna to begin to sound like Brett and Ellis. Like, I feel like, you know, the, the, I feel like there's a lot that I like about it, but I feel like there's a certain kind of like television quality to the way that the coverage is of the actors. Yeah. That I feel like it's a good movie. Like, I totally get why people like it. I, I, I liked it too. But I think that when it gets tossed as the best film of the year, I feel like there's a lot of things that people are, I feel like there's a lot of advantages to it that i that i i don't it's agree definitely
0: with. the front runner to win, I think for best picture it, I, just, I, I just it don't... would
3: not surprise me yeah it would not surprise me if it wins best picture, and yeah you know, it's not a bad I didn't
0: get the zodiac kind of euphoria from it no yeah. it,
1: no the television uh that's a good call because there is something slightly pedestrian about it, but there I think almost the things I like about it the most is I find it admirable. That it is pedestrian as a, as opposed to self righteous,
3: right? Well, the thing uh, is, like yeah. it, it, we were talking about films that, um, like uh, films that really benefit from the theatrical experience that are not blockbuster franchise type films. Spotlight will translate perfectly to the streaming model. Yeah. Like it is, it sure. is, it is the. It is the it is the film of the future, or at least of the present, as far as like what will play because it's very close-up heavy. You know, it it divides things up well between a really good cast like Mark Ruffalo. Like everybody is really good in it. Like, I'm not knocking that film as a bad film, but I, I just feel like that's that's like the, the you know the new model for what's supposed to be the great American film of right now, and I'm just not totally comfortable with
1: sure. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, again, I find an improvement over the self-righteous or the dopey and self-righteous. Like, you know, I kind of enjoyed that Birdman won Best Picture, if only because it's so weird a movie to win Best Picture. But, right. like, I I would rather I, – I like Spotlight way
3: more than I like Birdman, you know? Uh, well, I mean, Oscars are a whole other topic. But, I mean, you think about the last ten years of Oscar Best Picture winners, it's like it almost seems to, like, doom films to obscurity, yeah. almost – the minute they've wanted, you know, how, how often does the artist come up in conversation? Yeah, yeah. When <laughs> the king speaks. Um, you know? Speaking I mean, of dopey, my yeah.
0: biggest surprise of the year was dope. Oh, I loved it, and uh, I walked in not knowing what to expect. I heard, um, you know, a lot of good buzz going in, but it was just a surprise at how much I enjoyed it. it just, it felt like I was uh, back in junior high, like because I I went through you know that that, that sort of like the Diggable Planets phase of hip hop but it was also really interesting kind of updating on risky business in a way
1: yeah Yeah. Um, I I, I don't have like a movie that is the biggest surprise but um, I have surprising moments like I didn't know what the premise of Anomalisa is and if you don't know what it is just see it Without knowing the premise, because that slow dawning on you is really cool. (laughs) It's a Um, movie
0: I don't like to give away too much plot details.
1: Uh, Maybe maybe it will come up later, and we will. But right now I'll just say the premise of Anomalisa was a big surprise to me. I am very surprised that I became a defender of Michael Mann's digital aesthetic, because I hate Miami Vice so much, and I couldn't get through Public Enemies. But uh, Black Hat really did it for me, aesthetically. Speaking, I was surprised at that. Um, most of hate, I, yeah, i I'm not saying it's a great movie, but I I was surprised that I enjoyed the aesthetic. Most of Hateful Eight is just Tarantino surprising you and pulling the rug out from under you. But I think the biggest surprise of the year for me was that uh, Kristen Stewart can really fucking act. Because, um, I mean, I liked her in Into the Wild. That was the first time I ever saw her, but... She's kind of uh, non-emotive and dull in a lot of movies. Other movies I've seen her in, like the Twilight yeah. movies, or did you not like her in Adventureland? I didn't see Adventureland. Oh,
0: I think okay. you'd like Adventureland. But
1: I, I, I think I, I didn't, she was kind of boring in American Ultra. She's sort of boring in the Snow White and the Huntsman. She's like they in those big Hollywood movies that uh, Clouds of Silver Maria take on. So you know, takes on so well. Like she is very dull. But in Clouds of Silver Maria, she is incredible. So. That yeah, she'll come prize. up again. Bill?
3: Yep. Yeah. Um, I also had Dope, and I also had uh, La Sapienza, the Eugene Green film, which I went into just because I had time to kill at the New York Film Festival last year. And um, I really loved it. Um, I didn't know anything about it. And I, I – we'll, we might talk about it later. Okay, but, sounds uh, good. Dope, But Dope, I, I went into only knowing that it was about black geeks – was all I knew. And it was from the director of The Woods and Brown Sugar. Um, Mm -hmm. So I thought I knew what I was getting into, and um, it was a very nice surprise. I I, I didn't love it as much on the second viewing, but my first viewing of Dope, I walked out thinking that was the best film to hit multiplexes in 2015. Um, So it's definitely one that I did not expect that reaction when I saw it. I saw it back-to-back with Love and Mercy, and so I was already kind of in like a weird heads <laughs> but uh, yeah
1: it's great so we'll go through the next ones pretty quickly I think the most, most romantic yeah. shot or moment is the sex scene in Anomalisa
0: yeah that would be it and uh, the hotel scene in Carol
3: yeah my mo- most romantic scene actually I don't know if this is going to sound cheesy enough, but it was actually when Ben Stiller is talking to Naomi Watts at the end of uh, While We're Young after he gets kicked out of the honoring ceremony
1: That's a, that's a nice um, scene
3: I just, I don't know, for some reason it really got to me. Um, sex scene. I, I had, uh, the, the scene where, uh, the lead character hooks up with a neighbor in love, the Gus Noé film, uh, a pervert, what can I yeah, say? Sex,
1: for me, the sexiest <laughs> shot moment was the whole sequence at Jada Pinkett Smith's sort of love den in Magic Mike XXL. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, man. <laughs> I you still need to see that, then. Yep. It's a good movie. Good. You should see
1: it. Uh, I just chose the majority of Duke of Burgundy. Sure. Um, best either. director, I'm going to abstain because I don't know how you determine what the best director is opposed to best picture. I and I don't want to skip- spoil we, my number one. so I'll just skip over
0: one. What sexiest moment? The uh, moment that made or movie that made you to cry
1: the hardest? Oh, okay. Uh, for me, that was the ending of Marnie. Was there? I just bawled oh. my eyes out.
0: I don't even. I haven't seen that at all.
1: It's a Studio Ghibli movie. Got a theatrical release in Chicago this year.
0: Oh, yeah. mine is very easy. James White.
3: Yeah, I had a hard time thinking of this one because I don't normally cry at uh, classy movies. Mm-hmm. So I usually get moved by films that like don't have a lot of art to them. And uh, I think it actually is the uh, the final dialogue between mother and daughter in The Final Girls. The, uh, yeah, that made me cry <laughs> horror too. Horror comedy. Yeah. I, for, I, I mean, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think that actually was my... <laughs> okay so anyway hey, hey, hey. best, best director i abstain i abstain as well i this is not my number one film of the year so don't worry okay. but for best director uh, alexei german for uh hard to be a god it took him 45 years to make that fucking thing what so i'm giving him that award it took him 12 years to shoot it so I'm
1: giving him the uh, best director. <laughs> Fair oh enough.
0: God,
1: um, best actor. Uh, I really wanted to go with Joshua Burgess and buzzard, but there were, <laughs> just because I relate to that character so much. And I think that movie is such a great updating of 400 blows, but I think ultimately there's some weak moments of acting in that. I'd have to go with Samuel L. Jackson and Eight, sort of doing his first major, just owning the fucking movie kind of role in a while. Um, proving he still really has that Samuel Jackson quality. Christopher
0: Abbott and James White.
1: <laughs> I don't even know how to say
3: his name, but uh, Geza Rorig in Son of Saul is my best actor. Still need to
1: see that. It's yeah, good. Uh, best Supporting Actor? Um, I think, again, I I wanted to give it to Jason Segel in End of the Tour, because that was actually a big surprise, too. I thought he was very good in End of the Tour. That's a good call. But um, I think, ultimately, I still have to go with Hateful Eight, Walton Goggins. Uh, in Hateful Eight is wonderful. Oh so, yeah,
0: he would yeah. be my runner-up choice. I went with a very predictable because he's my favorite actor working today. Michael Shannon in 99 Homes. He's the best thing in that I movie. Went, I, still have I to thought see he was that. the lead. Went, in that. No, no, uh, Andrew Garfield's the lead.
3: Oh, okay. Yeah, I, do, I, know, I don't know if mine is actually technically a lead or not, but I think Tom Courtney in 45 Years. Sure. Is, for for mine mine, a supporting role, and he's phenomenal. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, we have to insert Best Actress, too, don't we? What do you mean? Ins- I already inserted it. Okay, just making sure. <laughs> sure. Just making sure. Uh, my Best Actress is Juliet Binoche in Clouds of Sils Maria. Uh, go ahead and say my Best Supporting Actress is Kristen Stewart in Clouds of Sils Maria. Uh,
0: my Best Actress is Rooney Mara in Carol, and my Best Supporting Actress is Kristen Stewart
3: in Clouds of Sils Maria. My Best Actress is Juliet Binoche in Clouds of Sils Maria, and my Best Supporting Actress is Cynthia Nixon for James White.
1: Oh, Good choice. Nice. Um, yeah. Best score. The runner-up for me was uh, Sicario, but uh, It Follows wins.
0: Uh, it's hard to choose. It follows Duke of Burgundy, Sicario, Carol, and uh, Hateful Eight.
1: What was the score for Carol? I don't even remember that score. I just. Carter saw that Burwell, movie. man. It's w- Carter, Carter, was it Burwell? was it like orchestral or was it piano twinkly stuff? Okay. <laughs> well, that's why I don't remember it. <laughs> that's why I said that. <laughs> that's, why I said that. <laughs> that's why I said that. Yeah.
3: My Bill? my best score was for for girlhood was best score, and um, oh, in terms nice. of soundtrack as score collection is song collection I would say just as a collection of
1: songs I would say Eden, but um, that's for score I would say girlhood. Cool, best screenplay uh, Mistress America and Hateful Eight are up there, but uh of So Maria won it for me.
0: Yeah, Mistress America and Anomalisa,
3: those are my two. Yeah, Mistress America, but I actually am giving it. Patrick, uh, cover your ears to uh, Ned Rifle for Hal Hartley. <laughs>
1: oh, <laughs> I mean, squirt, I know. Maybe he writes good screenplays. I can't tell because he directs his <laughs> actors to be fucking speaking spells. but I guess it's Bill possible. That, award. I guess I, I guess it's possible yeah. that the screenplays for those movies are good. Um, Best cinematography. Yeah. Uh, Tangerine and Sicario are both really, really good, um, but I'm gonna have to give it to Carol. Carol, uh, give it to the Forbidden Room for best cinematography. Now, Bill, you said you you thought that Queen of Earth is the worst film of 2015. So I'm, I'm yeah. just going to ask you: Did you see Jurassic World? I did. Okay, I also that's saw my the Dying of the Light of 2015.
3: I also saw the Dying of the Light, uh-huh. the uh, compromised Paul Schrader film, and Knock Knock, which that was both this year. Up. Oh, yeah, I guess
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Jim? Yeah. the Cobbler. I still don't know why I'm uh, bothered with it, but I forgot that was a 2015 <laughs> movie. I thought that was 2014. No, it
0: was 2015 from the
1: director of, from the director of Spotlight. Yep. Uh, best, uh, yeah. Best, yeah, one of the, the, the most best films, one of the worst movies he'll ever see. Oh, you mean it's an Adam Sandler movie? <laughs> yes, oh, exactly. Interesting. Um, most annoying trend of 2015 for me. I'm just going to say I have finally reached the point where I, there was a point where I was like, you know what, those Marvel movies—they're kind of predictable, but they're—they're predict—they're, but they're dependably entertaining. And I would enjoy them. I'm done watching Marvel movies. Uh, both of the ones that came out this year, I thought, were so generic and so just aggressively nothing. Ant-Man? Ant-Man and, uh, Ant-Man Ant-Man. and Avengers were both really dull.
0: Ant-Man was okay. I
1: couldn't finish Ant-Man. Because huh. it was just more of the same shit.
0: Okay. It was all right. I liked
1: it. So I'm d- my most annoying trend in 2015 is Marvel movies are still just fucking Marvel movies. Good on Edgar Wright for getting out of that racket. I couldn't think
0: of
3: a trend.
1: <laughs> That's fine, uh, Bill.
3: Um, just nostalgia-driven everything, uh, yeah, dominating okay. like what's being made, and not just films. But I mean, the fact that they're bringing back X-Files and Mr. Yeah. Show or, yeah. you know, or, or Arrested Development, or even like I love David Lynch, like Twin Peaks. Like I, I just feel like everything, like they're, they're doing another Gremlins, they're remaking Ghostbusters. I think Back to the Future and Jaws are not being remade because the Mexican Spielberg have power to stop it. But like everything of my generation that can be remade and resold, it's in production. (laughs) And I'm just... I'm not comfortable with it.
0: (laughs) That's a a good... I I like that. I I would agree with
1: that. Um, I think the (laughs) best scene or sequence uh, of the year is Duke of Burgundy's Mothlight. That whole sequence. Ding! Same for
0: you? Yeah, and I also really, really, really loved... The bear attack in the Revenant. Holy crap! I mean, the movie's not great, but it's worth seeing for the bear attack in the Revenant.
3: Yeah, I had the uh, the bear attack from the Revenant and the ending of Phoenix as my runners up. And um, oh, yeah. for my the scene that like legitimately makes me happy. I know you guys haven't seen this one, oh, yeah. but the um, the opening of the film Eden. It, they use this Derek May track called Sueño Latino, and it's just characters walking home from a rave like at, at dawn uh, after being out all night dancing and drinking and doing drugs. And there's just something kind of really, I don't know, the atmosphere of it, I, I, it I've seen the film three times now. And it just really uh, moves me every time I see that scene. It's, it's not a showpiece scene, but it's my favorite scene of the year.
1: Well, shit, we got to see that one. And also, I want to say this. This wasn't one of the categories we wrote down, but just because the movie won't get mentioned any other way, um, most inspired costuming choice goes to Yakuza Apocalypse, the Mm Takashi Miike movie. If you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. If you haven't seen it, the moment where there's a character that everyone is talking about, and the moment he finally appears on screen, the costume that character is wearing is the funniest thing I've ever seen. And it get uh, Mika gets so much fucking mileage out of this costume. I don't want to say anymore because it's honestly not a great movie. And that is the primary joy of the movie is seeing this character. Um, it's, it's so wonderful and it filled my heart with joy and it almost made me, it almost tricked me into thinking it was a good movie. <laughs> Which it is not. It's a bit, it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's rote in the way that some of the less inspired Mika movies feel rote. But, um, that costuming choice is so inspired and so wonderful.
0: Could that be your Halloween costume for next year?
1: Um I wish I hope they sell it somewhere. Oh, I will do okay. that for sure. So anyway, those are our categories. Mm-hmm. Um Jim, do you think we should read some reader lists or Oh crap, we should because uh, that is a necessary thing that we promised
2: <laughs> right. Necessary. I'm
1: going to tear through these. Thank you, everyone. We re- all read all not of these. You're going to read all of my ones, are you? No, I'm going to tear through a lot of them. We read all of the emails. Uh, we enjoy all the extra things you wrote. I'm just going to write. I'm just going to read out the lists.
0: I do have one that I do have to read myself.
1: Oh, if you if you say so, I'm trying to get this moving. So, uh, Mindy Whitaker said in her <laughs> top ten list, this is uh, top, number ten was Phoenix, number nine was Anomalisa. number eight was Inside Out, number seven was Queen of Earth. Number six was The Hunting Ground. Number five was The Martian. Number four was Spring. Number three was Madness Fury Road. Number two was Spotlight. And number one was Duke of Burgundy. Um, Caleb Bright sent in his ten favorite movies of the year. Inside Out was number ten. Nine was It Follows. Eight was Etz Machina. Seven was The Hateful Eight. Six was Girlhood. Five was Phoenix. Four was Carol. Three was Fury Road. Two was Cartel Land. One was Sicario. Um, we also have a list here from Cody Lang. Um, Very interesting list. Yes, it was an interesting list. He's he's from Canada, so he has some uh, I think some Canadian specific films in here. Uh, like number ten was Bring Me the Head of Tim Horton, which is apparently a Guy Madden film that also came out this year. I'd not heard of before this list. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, I see. Number short, nine was What Talk, We Do in yeah. Shadows. Number eight was Phoenix. Number seven was Timbuktu. Number six was Mad Max Fury Road. Number five was Magic Mike XXL. Number four was Carol. Number three was Right Now Wrong Then. Number two was 8888, which I've never heard of. Um, and then number one was Black Hat by Michael Mann. Hmm. And we also have a list here from Anthony Herbert. Uh, he also put us on his top ten favorite podcasts of 2015. So what thank a you, sweetheart. Uh, His number 10 was Straight Outta Compton, which we haven't mentioned yet. Um, Number 9 was Spotlight. Number 8 was Inside Out. Number 7 was It Follows. Number 6 was Ex Machina. Number 5 was Tangerine. Number 4 was Sicario. Number 3 was World of Tomorrow. Number 2 was Creed. And number 1 was Mad Max Fury Road. We also had some lists sent in to us on our Facebook page. I'm going to go ahead and read those three right now. There's one from Sean Deegan, whose number 10 was Spring. His number 9 was Kingsman, the Secret Service. His number eight was The Hateful Eight. His number seven was Crimson Peak. Uh, His number six was Bridge of Spies. His number five was Spotlight. Number four was It Follows. His number three was Ex Machina. His number two was The Big Short. His number one was The Look of Silence. Ross Miller also sent us a list on Facebook. His number 10 was Ex Machina. His number nine was The Look of Silence. His number eight was Steve Jobs, which ended up on a number of these top ten lists, but we haven't talked about yet. Um, His number seven was Selma, which maybe came out theatrically near him in 2015. His number six was Star Wars, The Force Awakens. His number five was Fast and the Furious 7. His number four was Birdman. His number three was Inside Out. His number two was Mad Max Fury Road. And his number one was Whiplash, um, which I think it got its UK release in 2015. So maybe, oh, that maybe Ross is from the UK. He um, yes. We also have Steve Slavi Kazan. His number 10 was Turbo Kid. <laughs> Okay, his number nine was Straight out of Compton, his number eight was Chirac, his number seven was Spotlight, his number six was The Big Short, his number five was The Hateful Eight, his number four was Dope, his number three was Anomalisa, his number two was Meet Earl and the Dying Girl, another movie hasn't been mentioned yet, but got on a couple lists, and his number one was Creed. Do you want me to keep going? Let's do a couple more. Okay. Colin Souter, who's been on the podcast before and will be on the podcast in the future on the George Miller episode. Yes, correct? indeed. His number 10 was Goodnight Mommy, uh, which hasn't been mentioned yet, but was sort of a notable indie release of this year. His number 9 was Cartel Land. His number 8 was Brooklyn. Number seven was World of Tomorrow. His number six was 45 Years. His number five was Star Wars The Force Awakens. His number four was the, was Room, not The Room. That would be interesting. His number three <laughs> was Spotlight. His number two was Inside Out. And surprisingly, his number one was Mad Max Fury Road. What a shock. How'd that happen? Um, we also have uh, audio from Andrew James, and we'll listen to that
2: Right now, Hello, Mr. Jim Laskowski. Glad to have Patrick back, and uh, hello to Bill as well. This is Andrew James from the Row 3 Cinecast, and I'm here to give you my top 10 films of 2015. As requested, there are a few things we're waiting on our end to see The Revenant on January 8th before we make this list official, because I have a feeling Inyaritu is going to uh, come through for us and uh, enter my top 10. But, with that aside, and a bunch of, of course, there's always stuff I missed. Anna Lisa, 45 Years, Brooklyn, Son of Salt, The Assassin. All sorts of stuff that I just didn't get to for one reason or another. But the ones that I did get to are as follows. Number 10, Spotlight. Very surprising, actually. I thought it was not going to be all that great. It looked like Oscar-bait garbage from the trailers. And then I get in there, and it just blew me away. Number nine, probably my most controversial, since there's so many people that hate this movie, uh, is Kingsman, The Secret Service. thought it was pretty. thought it was fun. I thought it was very un-PC. And uh, just something I hadn't seen before, I believe. So that's number nine. Number eight, Sicario. Uh, Number seven, there are three movies in which I shed tears this year. Number seven is one of those three, and that would be Inside Out by Pixar. Uh, number six, Furious 7, R.I.P. Mr. Walker. Number five, The Rocky Story Just Keeps on Truckin' with Creed. Number four, Bone Tomahawk. Number three, I could say Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs, but I think I'll say Aaron Sorkin's Steve Jobs. Uh, number two is The Clouds of Sils Maria And number one, I admit it's not the best movie of the year. Not by a long shot. But I would absolutely be lying to myself and all the listeners if I didn't have Star Wars The Force Awakens as my number one spot just for the sheer joy I had for two hours while I was watching this movie. Sure, it's fanboy. Yeah, it's nostalgia. There's a lot more to it than that, though. And uh, as I mentioned, there were three movies that brought tears to my eyes and uh, when the Millennium Falcon showed up, wow I still uh, get a little choked up it was pretty fun so uh, thank you guys so much for including me in your big year end roundup I look forward to seeing you guys in 2016 whether I'm there or not I always look forward to the next Directors Club podcast so you guys keep on trucking and we'll see you all throughout 2016 this is Andrew James from Row 3, cheers thank you
1: that was a great list. That was so good. We definitely just stopped and listened to it.
0: We sure did. I can't believe you put Star Wars at number one.
1: And, well, he's honest to the, the best uh, experience he had this year. Yeah. Oh, boy. This person didn't number them, so I'm just going to read them. The first ten I see. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, Dan Solomon. Thank you, Dan. He sent us every movie that he saw this year, uh, every 2015 movie. Yeah, you can just read the first ten. So I'll just read the first ten. His number one was Creed. His number two was Mad Max Fury Road. His number three was The Martians. His number four was The Big Short. His number five was Star Wars The Force Awakens. His number six was Paddington, which showed up on someone else's list. It's a cute movie. It is a cute movie. Um, that's his number six. His number seven was Spy. His number eight was Inside Out. His number nine was Tangerine. His number ten was Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Thank you, Dan. Very good
0: action movie. Yeah, that's a, that's a good place to pause, I think. And, okay. Uh, um... I think we'll. I think I'll save the surprise for last because it's a. It's indeed a wonderful email that uh, I think you're gonna. You're just gonna. You're you're gonna shit yourself.
1: Okay. I doubt it, but <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't sound like me.
0: <laughs> Anything's possible.
1: Um, so you get we, some more whiskey in you. Yeah. Right exactly. Uh, well, after we go through our runners up, we we'll, I'll get another drink and yeah, maybe that, I'll start yeah, shitting yeah, myself. Yeah. We'll do that. We'll do that. Um, speaking of just running through movies, uh, we. Loved a lot of movies this year, but only 10 of them are going to be in our top 10. It's funny how numbers yeah. work that way.
0: That's uh, yeah, that's the ones we're going to talk about a little bit more lengthy. I mean, we're going to give to reasons why they're in our top 10. Yeah. But we do have some runners-up, don't we?
1: Yes, we do. Mm-hmm. Um, these are going to be numbers 25 yes, to 11 do. on our lists. Um, I'll go ahead and start. My number 25 was Creed, which I think is just a very solid and entertaining boxing movie that – has more, it's more thoughtfully directed than I expected it to be. Yeah, it's my 26, um, actually. My number 24 was Focus, the Will Smith movie. Uh, again, just it's nice to see Will Smith just being charming again. Um, yeah. I, I, on, I guess, I guess he only did this because he knew he had concussion coming, and that was his big important movie. <laughs> but at any rate, my number 23 was Mad Max Fury Road, which is a very interesting and well-made movie. And the reason I'll just say right now, like the only, pretty much the only reason that it's not... I don't like it as much as other people, is I think, aesthetically, it's abhorrent. Ab- abhorrent. I, I hate it. I don't like the digital look, I don't like the color correction, and I don't like the way George Miller monkeys around with frame rates in every single shot. I think it makes it look fake, and I think it doesn't matter whether or not he did all the the stunts practically, because it just looks like a video game. Um, and if it looked a little more naturalistic... Even the pole, vault, pole vaulting that's stuff? That's what I'm saying. It doesn't matter what he did actually, because he monkeyed around with the frame rate and the speed of each shot. he's Apparently when this was languishing in post-production hell for like two or three years, that's sort of what he did during that time. Um, yeah. And a lot of people really responded to that and I'm happy for those people. Um, I think there's a lot of thoughtful writing that has been about this movie and about the women of this movie and about all the different things it says and I think all that is really cool. But ultimately I don't like it as an action movie because it looks fake as hell. So... That's why it's only my number 23. I think it's a cool movie that sort of shot itself in the foot with a really gross aesthetic. Um, My number 22 was Spy, which uh, is exactly what I expected, except much funnier. Yeah, it's funny. Um, My number 21 is Magic Mike XXL. Um, It's the thing I wish Magic Mike was, except, again, there's no penises in it, which is ridiculous to me. Mm, Um, That's really disappointing. Right? But uh, it is just... It is just all of the bullshit about, like, the economy and about, like, Alex- Alexander Prettyfur's, like, tragic fall as he gets into drugs. You know, all the things from the first movie that are oh, done. Yeah, 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 Like, all of that stuff is gone, and it is just – Fun. It's basically just, like, a positive version of Entourage, where it's just dudes hanging out and being friendly and nice. But instead of being douchebags and trying to, like, fuck models, they're just, like, trying to support each other emotionally. And it oh, has great dancing. Oh, my God. I want to see that. It's though. wonderful. Uh, my number 20 was Buzzard. Like I said, it's a really great update of the 400 Blows. I think uh, Joshua Burge does a wonderful job. Um, I It's a really cool movie that uh, – And you should listen to the interview Patrick did with Joel yeah, I Yeah, I did an interview with Joel Patrykis, and I was nervous because I watched all of Joel Patrykis' films leading up to that interview. And hopefully he's not listening to this right now because I didn't enjoy – particularly enjoy a lot of his films. I thought they were interesting – but as I was watching all his films leading up to this, I'm like, uh-oh. i gotta, I got to find nice ways to ask him questions about this without revealing that I don't like it. And then Buzzard, there's a certain point um, about midway through where Joshua Burr's eating a plate of spaghetti. And I'm yeah. like, this is the greatest. I'm on board. This is awesome. This movie's great. Yeah. Um, wonderful. Uh, my number 19 is Black Sea. The only thing I like more than boxing movies are submarine movies. And Black Sea is one of the best ones. It's yeah. really exciting. Um, and it's really cool. And it's basically just... Treasure of the Sierra Madre on a submarine. That's the entire I, premise of then it. Then I need to see it. Yeah, it's really cool. And, uh, Jew, and I'm surprised it doesn't have any buzz to it because even even has the thing that is sort of like catnip for people where a former pretty boy, uh, pretty boy actor does sort of like a gruff and different kind of character because in this, Jude Law is this hardened Welsh sailor. Um, or Scottish. I know, he's Scottish sailor. I get the accents mixed up. And he's very convincing and very good in it. Um despite it not being his typical kind of role. I mean, despite it being basically the antithesis of his character in spy the same year. Um, My number 18 was spotlight, which we talked about. I think it's a very well-made procedural that I enjoy watching. Um, It doesn't really elevate to anything beyond that. And because of its subject matter, there isn't that like palpable paranoia that you get out of Zodiac or all the president's men where the themes of the movie and the mechanics of the movie sort of dovetail into one thing. That spotlight, they're kind of separate. Like, you understand why it's important, and you understand why you're enjoying watching it, but they're kind of just two separate things in that movie. Um, in 17, the end of the tour, it's just two people hanging out, having great conversations. It's a very enjoyable movie. It doesn't have a lot of depth. I think it's got a really good, accurate... I think Jason Siegel does a really good, accurate portrayal of depression um, yeah. that is not overblown at all. Um, apparently, it's not, you know... It's not true to the real life of uh what, what's the author's name? David, David Foster Wallace, Wallace. is not true to his real life. According to the friends of David Foster Wallace, but whatever, who cares? I enjoy that movie a lot. I My mean, number 16 is dope, which is, yeah, it's basically Edgar, uh, Edgar Wright remakes risky business in the, in the, in the ghetto of LA. It's fucking awesome. It's a little too spread out and sporadic and spread. the wrong word. It's, it, 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 it's a little too schizophrenic in all the different directions it goes. Yeah, I like that's all what of kept them. it off
0: my list. I, so I feel that that's right the here. only reason
1: it's so low because I really enjoyed the hell out of it. My number 15 is While We're Young, which is, I just think, a really, really funny movie. Um, and yeah. I think it is, I think it's an hysterically funny movie and I think that Noah Baumbach has learned a lot about directing films since he was making hysterically funny movies last. Um, and I think that Especially, in, I think I think Mistress America is better, but I think While We're Young benefits more from the things he's learned about editing. And I hope his days directing.
0: of Margot at the wedding are gone.
1: Yeah, or or he just does them better because I mean, his days of Margot at the wedding are also his days of Squid and the Whale. You know, That's like true. those were those were two movies right after each other. Um, my number fourteen is Anomalisa. I think it's an incredible, beautiful uh, movie. I think it's got a really great premise. It's It's a bit of a disappointment because you expect uh, a Charlie Kaufman movie to just, like, explode your head and be crazy audacious, and it's actually kind of a small and intimate movie. That's – it's amazing, though. It's really great. Uh, I enjoy it a lot. It's just, like – it's the only Charlie Kaufman movie I've ever been out ahead of it before it finished. I knew how it was going to end. That's
0: how Mike D'Angelo felt, yeah.
1: Yeah, well, it it wasn't even that because I was like, well, it's a Charlie Kaufman movie, so it's not going to end the way I think it is. So it wasn't necessarily that I knew, but when it did end, I was like, "Really? There's not more movie? Because um, you expect that you expect him to go apocalyptic basically all the time, and this is a smaller, more intimate movie. You
0: expect me to go apocalyptico?
1: Yeah, that too. <laughs> uh, my number thirteen was uh, Sicario. It's a really, really great thriller. Um, the pretty much the only problem with Sicario is that it's because it's about the Mexican drug cartels. It is just. Like, it's a foregone conclusion. It's going to be about hopelessness. It's going to be about the intractability of everyone involved on the drug war. And it's – and everything's just going to be bleak and terrible because that's how every movie about drug – the Mexican yeah. drug cartels are. So there's no surprises in Sicario. Well, the
0: traffic kind of ends on a hopeful note, right, because he gets the baseball field? Ah, I don't
1: know. Yeah, I don't think traffic. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think of traffic very often, in fact. But at any rate, so it's just like – it's almost like – It it suffers just because it's a foregone conclusion, but as far as those movies go, it's a really good version of it, and it has amazing Roger Deakins cinematography, and it's got a great percussive score. Um, I really like Sicario a lot. My number 12, it broke my heart that I couldn't get it on my top 10 list because this is the Leviathan of this year for me. This is the formal experience that completely exploded my head and changed the way I thought movies could be, and you're going to laugh, but it's Unfriended. I think Unfriended is incredible. Um Yeah, I love Unfriended. I I think Unfriended is great, and I think I don't have a lot of complaints a lot of people have about that movie, um, just because I think... I always get surprised when reported horror fans get mad when movies feature shitty teenagers, because that has been the case for horror movies since the 70s. And also, in this film, they're depicted as realistically shitty. Um, I I think the whole movie's really good. I think it works really well if you just watch it on your laptop. Um the only problem is that the resolution of the DVD is not the actually as high as the resolution of a laptop screen. Oh, so it's not it's so you have to get like a really high quality version of it and watch it on your laptop and it's great. And it's yeah, it there's there's miles and miles of unclaimed territory of modern living that is just not in any movie because how do you make texting cinematic? How do you make chat windows cinematic? Like you can do the thing that has been done recently where, like, a little iPhone text pop-up appears on screen when someone's looking at their phone, like, that sort of thing. Like, yeah, it's just kind of tacky. It's hard to accurately simulate in cinema. I think this is actually a a problem a lot of modern films have, I feel. The actual feeling of being in a place and then being online at the same time, where you can be next to someone on the couch and have a conversation with them, but you can also be online, and you can also be doing other things. Multitasking? Yeah, like, that sort of thing's really hard to depict Yeah. in cinematically, and I think Unfriended does it so well.
0: I, I love the aesthetics of it. I think it's fantastic. Um, but I just need to re-watch it again, because I, I don't know. It's, it sort of goes down the territory I expect it to. Yeah. Like, a hand in no, a yeah. I No, absolutely. Yeah.
1: I think it just... Like, if it was just this art film where nothing exciting happened, I'd probably like it more. But as far as, like, this movie actually getting made, I... I, I like what it does as a horror film. I think it has yeah. a lot of clever sequences. Um, so that's my number 12. And my number 11 is Don Hertzfeld's World of Tomorrow. And it's, it's just another Don Hertzfeld movie. It's fucking great. I love Don Hertzfeldt That's Hertzfeld's all you need movies. to say. Yeah. So those are my runners-up.
0: Mine would be 25 is False. Riley Stearns' is very Coen Brothers-esque kind of dark comedy about cults. With uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead sort of knocking it out of the park, that's like her best performance, and um, it's it's a really just sort of complex film, I think, and it does have a, maybe one subplot too many to really you know elevate it. But in terms of a debut feature, I think I think and I'm not just saying this because I interviewed the guy and I like him a lot. I just think his his vision is really interesting, and I think he's he's going down like, a very sort of simple territory, like, like, you know, I have a simple premise, here it is, here's the setup, we have a hotel room, here's two characters, in a very Mammoth-esque kind of way, we're going to hash it out and figure out what who's who. How is it Mammoth-esque? Well, I didn't I said, get it, a chance it, to see it. In a way, it's, I mean, it's certainly there's more characters that come into play, but there are certain sections of this movie that did remind me of Oleana, where there's two characters sort of going back and forth, um, reassessing who they are, and just, like, confronting one another in a very confrontational uh-huh. way and like there's a really great scene where they flip in a way like you think oh that person's in control but it turns out the other person's in control so it, it, it plays with power dynamics in a way that i found really compelling and interesting it's not perfect but i i certainly think it's well worth a look and it's sort of swept under the rug unfortunately didn't even get a good blu-ray release or anything so um yeah check out uh check out riley Stearns' faults i i really really think people should uh um Give that film a look. Number twenty-four is Amy, um, one of the better documentaries of the year for me. Um, a movie that really moved me to tears. There's a, a heartbreaking moment where it's like she's, um, you know, on stage and she looks to her dad and she goes, "Hey, dad, it's Tony Bennett." And like, there's there's moments in this film that just really shook me up. And I know that it, it, it's it, the the narrative of the You know, drug-addicted rock star has been done to death, and I can see the the behind-the-music argument that you have there with, like, oh, this has been done before in the same way another movie that's going to be in my runners-up montage of heck follows, but I just thought it was well shot because it's not a bunch of talking heads talking about how great Amy was. It's just her and raw footage, a lot of it is, you know? So I thought it was well done. Mm -hmm. And it's the same guy who did Senna, and I think he's a really interesting filmmaker, but... Number 23 is The Look of Silence. Now, this is the follow-up film to The Act of Killing, and I think The Act of Killing is such an audacious, difficult film to wrestle with, and The Look of Silence is a little bit more conventional in its execution, but I certainly felt the same kind of rage, and there are certain moments where one... it's, It's mainly focused on one character confronting... Uh, a lot of these, you know, criminals that are still in power in this country and talking to him about what happened to his brother and everything, that you can't help but just feel the same anger that he's feeling. So, I mean, like, as a pure emotional experience, there's no denying, like, what this filmmaker, Joshua Oppenheimer is doing something that, in a confrontational way, that very few, few documentarians are doing. So, number 22 would be... World of Tomorrow, yep. which we've talked about. And what, what can you say about Don Hertzfeld? Number 21 is The End of the Tour, which um, you know we talked about a lot in Best uh, Dialogue. Some of the best dialogue you'll hear all year is in that film. I, I really need to read Infinite Jest. Uh, number 20 is Mommy, which I know we'll be hearing about more, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. It should be higher. I need to rewatch it again. Number 19 is Bobcat Goldthwait's Call Me Lucky, which you do need to get past like maybe 15 minutes of Barry Cribbins is the greatest man, you know, from Mark Marin and everybody and yeah. all the communities you, you come to expect. Once you get to the story of what he went through, uh, his sexual abuse and how he sort of turned that around into a very positive way um, and sort of confronted the Catholic Church and confronted AOL and did all this proactive work, it's something. You need to see Call Me Lucky. It's one of Bobcat's best films. 18 is a montage of Heck, uh, Kurt Cobain's film. Uh, number 17 is a film we'll be talking about more, and I bet if I rewatch it again, it's almost like a Nightcrawler situation, bet if I watch it again, I'll love it more. Uh, it's Clouds of Sils Maria.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Number, 15, uh, number 16 is 45 Years, which um, has one of the most devastating endings to a movie I've ever seen, and uh, Charlotte Rampling... Gives one of the best performances of the year. Uh, Number fifteen is a film that I don't think has opened in the Chicagoland area yet, but it will. It's uh, Mustang from Turkey. I'm seeing that on Saturday. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna flip. Mm -hmm. I think you'll love it. Um, It's a really powerful film about uh, four I believe it's four or five daughters having to overcome patriarchy in a way, and I mean they have to overcome sort of arranged marriages and things like that and some do, some don't, and you sort of learn about each story as it goes along. Number thirteen is uh, Spotlight, which we talked about. Great ensemble, and uh, I concur that you know if you can sort of frame it in the TV sort of perspective of like oh it's yeah it's a little bit Lifetime esque at times, but I still found it riveting and some of the best acting of the year. I wouldn't call
1: it Lifetime esque. Yeah, Lifetime esque would view all the things that Spotlight doesn't do. Lifetime yeah. Ask would have one of them be like, Well, I was abused or like Yeah,
0: yeah. I I mean there's I think there was like a couple like when when the guy is standing outside, Oh, there's a church you know? Yeah, like, sure. And I think, you know, on one hand that's that's a little heavy handed, but on the other hand it's like, yeah, that's it that's you know, the way you choose to frame that moment i don't think it's a bad choice but i could see somebody making that argument and people have made that argument and you know people saying it's overrated and stuff i don't know um number 12 is inside out pixar's um really interesting movie that um i I was i was floored by emotionally and uh i I mean i understand like too that there's there, there could be a better movie made with that subject matter, but um, I thought I just thought it was really
1: inventive. We don't have to go into it now. I think I think I need to change my answer, and I think Inside Out the most overrated movie of oh,
0: 2015. Okay.
1: I thought that was really poor. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And number my number eleven is uh, Sicario.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Which, um, yeah, incredible score. How about that tunnel sequence?
1: Incredible. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just really tense stuff. So.
3: Um, those are my runners up, boy, oh boy, those are some good films yeah i I have um, I made a top forty earlier, and there 's a lot of films that aren 't on my uh, my runners up that I really like this year, including several that you both have mentioned so um, yeah it's it 's almost arbitrary like there's there 's a lot of really terrific films this year um, so i these these are my runners up, but there 's a lot of good ones that i 'm leaving off um, so 25, I have By the Sea, uh, Angelina Jolie. Um, it's kind of similar to certain uh, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton films, like uh, Who's, Who's Pretty Virginia Woolf, or even some of the Joseph Losey stuff. They like like boom. Um, kind of like a little bit like Antonioni. Uh, like it's, you know, malaise among the, uh, the rich and alienated. Uh, very unfashionable style. I, I get why it flopped. I get why people don't like it. Um, I feel like, that might work in its favor in some weird way. I mean, they can both afford to be in a flop. Um, and I feel like, I feel like the people that are going to like it best are people that are going to like find it just randomly and connect with it. Um, which is probably a hard thing to achieve to have like an unknown little cult film when it's like the most famous movie star couple on earth. Uh, 24, I have James White, which I'm sure will come up again. Um, I think strong acting really kind of elevates this one. Um, I need to see it again. I might be underrating it. Um, I feel like I've seen a lot of alienated young man stories. Um, So this is not like the most unique film to me. Um, I feel like someone closer to that age could really have their life transformed by it. So I'm probably underrating it. But I I think it's very good. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about it soon. Uh, 23, I have... A pigeon it sat on a branch reflecting on existence. Roy Anderson's latest uh, low-key absurd comedy. Uh, I think it's a very visually attractive film. Uh, like It has a razor-sharp focus throughout the entire thing. It's like these absurd kind of tableau kind of scenes, like motionless camera, like weird, how do I say Monty Python, maybe even David Lynch kind of comedy. Um, it's not as pretentious as the title might make you think it is. Uh, 22, I have Dope. The uh, Rick on um, the Yua film, uh, director of Wood and Brown Sugar. He also wrote Talk to Me, the Don Cheadle film. Um, you know, it's interesting to me because it's – I watched I, – I became a big fan of the podcast Black on Black Cinema this year. And I was watching a lot more films that were just, I guess, really well-known with, like, African-American audiences but, like, are not big crossover films with, like, you know – uh, the, the broader cineast kind of population, and something like Brown Sugar, you never hear it talked about really. Um, so I went into this one kind of not sure what to expect. Other than it was about black geeks, and uh, it's interesting It's it's the one that is most white film influenced. From what I know, it's like taking from uh, Pulp Fiction and Boogie Nights and things like that as its inspirations as much as anything else. I thought that um, some of the bad pseudo punk songs were uh, detriments to oh, it those, from the montages. Yeah. yeah, yeah I felt
1: we're really bad where like they start performing and it sounds like overproduced studio thing. Yeah it's just like hey, yeah. guys let's go. No 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 no. We're not like everyone else, Pop. <laughs> yeah exactly. It's like
3: that watching it a second time really kinda knocked this down a little bit for me. But yeah, I, me think that, um, I think that I think that it's her name Kiersey Clemens as Diggy, the uh, the oh, lesbian yeah, sidekick I thought was phenomenal. Uh, I, thought, I thought it was interesting. It was like the second film I saw this year uh, along with Straight a Company where a bus is held up at gunpoint. I don't know what trend that's starting. <laughs> um, but, you know, in a way, it's it almost like it's kind of what I wanted. It's almost like a post-Dear White People take on Risky Business to me. Like it's like non-stereotypical black characters. Um, and it's not a film about that. Like yeah. it's about something else. But it's like it's I don't know. I think it's a really refreshing film. There's a lot I like about it. I, I you know, there's just too many flaws for me to rank it higher, but I think it's a really uh strong film and probably a lot more accessible than a lot of films I'll be talking about later. So I think I think it's definitely what I'd recommend if people haven't seen it. Uh twenty-one is Clouds of Sils Maria, which I know we'll be talking about again. Um I think it's a brilliant film. Um I think when I was watching it the first time, I went into it with kind of low expectations. I've seen a lot of Olivia Asias films, and like I just thought, you know, it was going to be, you know, his kind of maybe stab at an American market with, you know, Kristen Stewart in it. And I went in kind of thinking it would be like middlebrow French film, you know, but English language. And I thought it was really phenomenal, and even better the second time I watched it. Um, I thought, for some, I watched it, it. I felt like it felt like a lesbian cult film. From a time when you weren't allowed to show gay relationships on film, <laughs> um, like it, it felt like it would be that kind of film from another period to me. Sure, um, but um, and, and in a weird way, that one scene where uh, they use canon and D major for um, uh, Johann Pachelbel, uh, the uh, when the uh, Maloha Snake kind of comes through, it's the same piece of music that opens uh, Enigma of Casper Hauser. And so I wondered the first time I saw it if it was parodying Herzog. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I like it a lot, and I know we'll talk about it again soon. Uh, 20, I have Lost Soul, The Doom Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, the oh, documentary, yeah, that's really good. I love that film. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, uh, Richard Stanley comes across like very sweet and passionate, but um, you know, also kind of eccentric. Like you can understand why studios are afraid of him now. Um, Val Kilmer and Mullen Brando uh, come across horrifyingly bad. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think it's really good. It's in tradition of things like um, Hodorowski's Dune. Hodorowski's Dune. Yeah. Um, uh, that was that Terry Gilliam uh, Lost in La Mancha, right? Um, or even uh, Burden of Dreams. Uh, but it's very good. Uh, I think it's on Netflix still. Um, 19, I have, um, this might be a cheat, but it did open theatrically for the first time this year. Uh, Gangs of Wasipur, um, oh, yeah. it's, uh, in- Indian, uh, gangster epic. It was made in 2012, but it didn't come out in theaters in America till January, 2015. So I included it cause I saw it on other people's lists. And, um, it's actually, uh, the poster, when I walked into the theater, had a quote from one of your regular guests, Kurt Halfyard. Yeah, I think it was his
0: favorite movie of last year,
3: maybe. Um, yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's got. Um, yeah, It's interesting because it's like, you know, it's Indian film, but it's like pulling as much from Goodfellas and City of God and maybe even Once Upon a Time in America as much as any kind of like Bollywood influence, although it does have a strong musical component. It's uh, an epic crime family, battling families. I think Netflix has it as a miniseries. Uh, Streaming, So it's really worth your time if you like, you know, epic crime dramas. Sure. Um, 18, I have uh, a film I'm sure we'll talk about about again soon, but It Follows, the David Robert Mitchell uh, horror film. Um, I actually have you guys to thank for uh, exposing me to the myth of the American sleepover, um, which I really liked quite a lot. And I thought um, I really liked the suburban menace of – you know the Halloween and blue velvet kind of feeling of the neighborhood and how it's shot. I think there's a lot of good things about it i there's some things I'm not crazy about, but I by and large really love this film i 've seen it probably the most number of times of any of the films on my list because um, it's the easiest film to talk people into watching um, but uh, seventeen I have son of Saul, the Leslo Niens film uh, from Hungary uh, really viscerally intense. Holocaust film about the uh, Sonderkommando prisoners, concentration camps forced um, to play the assistant role in the executions. Uh, really horrifying, intense. Uh, I don't know that the world really needed to. Um, I don't know how many people didn't know the Holocaust was horrifying, but you <laughs> know, um, it's a re- it, it lives up to its reputation. I think the only detractors I've heard are people that think the whole idea of a viscerally intense Holocaust film is is innately disable. Um If you don't have that opinion, I would say it's, it lives up to its reputation. Um, Blind, I have for 16, es- Eskil Vakt. uh It's a Norwegian film. Uh, the guy who wrote... Um, have you ever saw a film called Oslo, August 31st?
0: Oh, yeah, that was uh, very good.
3: Yeah, it's a guy that wrote that. He wrote and directed this as his first film. Uh, It's about, um, it's funny, I don't know what to say about it that doesn't constitute some kind of spoiler, but I guess you could, you know, just to tell you something, it's about a a woman that has gone blind that is writing uh, fiction and how that fiction is kind of informed by her real life and her own kind of concerns. And you get get a shred of maybe um, adaptation from it, but it's not quite Mm. that post-structuralist or whatever like it's 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 sexy and funny and original um 15 i have uh two doris nicole which I, I guess we might talk about uh it's um i thought it has a real sense of uh of mood and atmosphere for what is you know ultimately like a, a young person's kind of hangout comedy uh, i think it has a lot of kind of wit and uh I don't know. I, I think it's a very likable film. I, it's one I look forward to seeing again. Um, 14, I have Ned Rifle, Hell uh, Hartley's second sequel to uh, the 1998 feature Henry Fool.
0: Finally!
3: Yes, I know you. I was. It's not number one. I, I know it's. <laughs> yeah, I liked, yeah. It. I liked it. I liked it.
0: I think Aubrey Plaza fits into Hell Hartley's universe quite well.
3: Yeah, well, it's funny because it's, you know. My big complaint about things moving in a nostalgia kind of direction, it kind of I'm not super crazy about Hal Hartley trying to evoke his nineteen nineties heyday. And as a Hal Hartley fan, I wouldn't say this compares well to his his nineties output, but you know, I mean, obviously it's not gonna make a fan out of someone like you know, like Patrick that does like think, thinks this style is innately off-putting. But I think if you like Hal Hartley it's the most uh, immediately pleasurable thing he's done in a long time has a lot of supporting parts and cameos from people that were in the 90s films like Martin Donovan Karen Silas, uh, Bill Stage Robert John Burke as well as all the leads from Henry Fool, Parker Posey, Thomas G. Ryan Um, I don't think he ever really lost it so I don't think of it as a return to form I like his stuff generally but um, I think it's you know if if you like Hal Hartley but haven't seen stuff in a while um, it's worth checking out um, 13, I have The Diary of a Teenage Girl, um, which I really like a lot. I I think that some of the animated stuff in it is a little bit too cutesy for my taste. But it's What's interesting about it is that – and I think I mentioned this in, in the Letterboxd review I did. But it's, it, it, it takes the darkly realist kind of European kind of like dark sexual coming-of-age style film. Like you think of Fish Tank or you think of um, – I uh, know some more, or you think of certain, uh, Catherine Briat titles like fat girl or real young girl. And it's like, it takes that and combines it with like the real exuberant, bouncy post Sundance indie wood kind of style, like of a, um, you know, like of a Juno or a Sophia Coppola or even Wes Anderson. Like there's a lot of slow motion, a lot of like catchy classic rock kind of material kind of, it, it, but it's, but it's dealing with sexuality in like a real interesting way. And like, it, I feel like, um, it's interesting because like I, I know like two kinds of people like you know the, the kind of people that like just see this and go like well it's kind of like soft peddling something that something like Ghost World or Fat Girl does more you know raw or that or you have the other type and the mainstream comedy might find it too racy um, you know I think there was one IMDb review that like essentially called for police to follow stray men who go to the theaters home to look for child pornography on their computers <laughs> uh, like it's it's definitely like it's. I don't know. It feels like one of the only films I've seen about teenage girl sexuality that is more aimed at teenage girls than, like, men with Lolita fetishes. I think it's a real refreshing film. And I think that as much as I liked it, the thing I like most about it is thinking that girls, like, a lot of girls I've known over the years, like, at that age... Um, they might see that film and feel like some kind of connection with it that a lot of films just aren't really celebrating those kind of girls I don't know I mean I think it's really for you know it's not perfect but I think there's a lot to recommend it yeah it's um, pretty
0: audacious yeah
3: yeah um twelve I have Heart of a Dog uh, the uh kind of essay film uh, I think that it's one that I went into kind of warily because I thought I don't know if you remember the film Tabloid, the Errol Morris film. Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking of Joyce and her dogs, and I was thinking, like, is this going to be, like, a documentary, like, if she had made something celebrating Booger or whatever her dog was and that? Like, I, I don't know what
1: I thought There's it would be. Booger like some, Booger, song, son, <laughs> Booger. Yeah. <laughs> Booger's yeah,
3: For some reason, I thought it was going to be, like, maddeningly precious. Sure. And it's not at all. No. It's one of the most uh, – is really one of the most moving things I saw this year. Um, I don't even know how to sum it up. It's just it moves fluidly from idea to idea, image to image. Like, the images are so striking, and the things it makes you think about, whether it's, you know, living in a police state or post-9-11 kind of anxieties, I think it's... I think people see, like, a dog playing a keyboard and think, like, what, this is going to
1: be some bullshit, and it's not. It's really... It's really terrific, the way um, it synthesizes all of its disparate elements is shocking and incredible
3: yeah I think I think it's a masterpiece
1: yeah um, I, I I was i I didn't get a chance to
3: see it a second time I didn't like take a lot of notes watching it in the theater, so i didn't I didn't have like a lot to prepare for, but I think if I watch it again, it might even move up further I mean, over time for me on the list, but at first watch, I thought it was absolutely terrific um uh, number 11, I have La Sapienza. It's a um, – again, something I would recommend strongly that you avoid, Patrick, because it reminds me a lot of Hal Hartley. Okay. Um, it, it's interesting because it's like – what Hal Hartley's whole comedy technique is just taking the mannered acting style of Robert Brisson and 80s Godard and transposing it to English language and that's kind of the joke. So – this kind of takes Hal Hartley and brings it back to France <laughs> um, oh so it's like it's the same kind of like mannered framing and uh, delivery of dialogue, but a little bit of the Osojiro ozu in the way that like a lot of characters address the camera directly um, but it's like a very charming little character comedy i don't i don't know it, it, i i didn 't know anything about it going into it, and it was a really nice surprise. I think it's streaming on um Netflix now. Um, So it's, I don't know if you like things like Eric Romer films or, you know, things like Al Hartley, you know, I'd say it's something that like just kind of totally slipped by under the radar and I really liked it a lot. Um, So that's my number 11.
0: (laughs) Oh boy, guys.
1: What a year. We're there. We're there. We're there. I can't believe it. We're finally in 2016. We're done with that year. Forget it. We're (laughs) done, right? Yeah. We don't have to do anymore. We don't have to talk about 2015 anymore.
0: I think I also forgot that my number 14 was Tangerine. Sorry.
1: I skipped over it (laughs) somehow. You skipped over 14? Yeah. So is that it? Are we done talking about 2015 films? I don't don't know, Patrick. I mean, we we just talked a lot.
0: Do we have more? There are so many good movies in there to recommend to people.
1: Yeah. We could
0: just wrap it up. Call it a day. We could. We could be like like the Fabulous Thunderbirds and just wrap it up.
1: Is that a Fabulous Thunderbirds? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. I'm so envious of anyone who got that. (laughs) That that seemed like a real good one. I know,
0: right? I don't know where it came from. (laughs) Oh, my God, guys. We might need another drink. And then we're going to come back with our top ten films of 2015.
1: Lean into it. Do do that one more time, but really lean into it this time.
0: Hey, guys, you know what? I think we're going to need... Another drink. And then we're gonna come back with our top ten films of twenty fifteen.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I like the first take better. But that was good. Thank you.
0: Well let's just... we'll let you know. The second take. We'll is let you music- know. Next I'll take it. That was uh, wrap it up by the fabulous Thunderbirds here on Directors Club Podcast 2015 Part 1. Now go ahead and download Part 2 to hear our top 10 favorite films of the year. Yeah.